0: Avanti, pop Snoops and welcome to the Giddy Carousel of Pop, the podcast that takes an old issue of the swing a pop mag smash-its, usually from the 1980s, although we have been known to slide a year or two either side of that, and has a right good rummage through its pages with a guest. I'm Simon Galloway, and fighting for your right, my right, and of course <laughs> his right to party, it's Mr Gavin Hall. Party! Hello, Cy. Si. How
1: you doing? <laughs> I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? Oh, tip-top, thank you very much. Si, I believe you have been on a actual, an actual carousel yourself. Tell us, what was
0: the experience like? What happened? This very afternoon, oh, in the town, West Yorkshire town of Halifax, went for a bit of food, and what do you know, there's a little fairground there in the Peace Hall... Uh, rather exotic location in the middle of Halifax. It, <laughs> honestly, it looks, like a, it looks like somebody just put a bit of Italy in the middle of Halifax. And, uh, and there was a l- little selection of fairground rides. There was a carousel. Who was I to refuse a ride on the carousel? Um, my horse was called Little John. <laughs> uh, it was kind of uh, goldish and, and reddish and, and things. His ears were a little bit careworn. I think he mm. might have been a, a rescue Aww. carousel horse. But, you know, he's he's living his best life now. That's lovely. And we shared three glorious (laughs) minutes together.
1: On a scale of one to ten, how giddy was the carousel?
0: Oh, it it was an absolute ten out of ten. Ooh. It ticked every uh, giddy carousel box that you would ever wish to have ticked. Excellent.
1: Did they know who you were when you went on the ride as well? Did they give you a free ride? Did you say, I'm Simon Galloway from the Giddy Carousel of Pop?
0: I don't like to draw attention to these things. Fair enough. (laughs) apart from posting it all over social media. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, before we set uh, our own particular carousel spinning in motion, Gav, what's the latest from the Carousel Coffee Kiosk? The KO-FI
1: kiosk where people have bought us virtual coffees. We've got a few today, which is good because it's a quite a cold day, so it warm our little bellies up. We've got uh, Simon W. Thank you very much, Simon. Uh, Simon says, I was a Closet its reader for years, love the pod, Do not love you, be bloody 40. Well, yeah, you're in good company there, Simon. Uh, Also donations from Jamie Anderson, thank you very much. And the fine, fine people at the excellent publishers, Boat Whistle Books. And finally, uh, Steve Fenton has been in touch as well. Very nice to hear from you, Steve, and uh, delighted to get your little donation. Thank you. Steve says, maybe next time... Get someone a bit less shy and let her get a word in. I think he might be talking about Mickey Berenia, our last guess. Quite possibly. (laughs) He says, (laughs) P.S. Yeah, another mention of the Farmers Boys. Yeah, they do seem to crop up quite often, don't they? Bizarrely enough. So, um, yeah, as Steve mentioned there about uh, Mickey and just want to say thanks very much for all the lovely comments that people had. That seemed to go down very well
0: with the pop kids, didn't it? It was a lot of fun, so I'm glad that uh, every, that we were able to share that experience. Uh, so, yeah, if you want to support us uh, in buying us a coffee, you can do the same. It's uh, very simple. It can be just a one-off thing, or you can buy us as many coffees as you like. As often as you like, it's up to you. Just go to ko-fi.com slash pod. That's ko-fi.com slash pod. Chuck us a few quid to help keep the carousel spinning. Or if you want to leave us a review or rating on your podcast app, you can do that instead. Whatever you listen to your podcast on, there's usually a bit where you can give it a star rating or or you can leave a little review. So feel free to share and spread some kind words. Uh, So Gav, it's the moment we've all been waiting for. What's the latest in the land of the carousel? I'm
1: very glad you asked, Sai. The carousel's latest manifestation was in America, where it landed in Los Angeles in 1982. As we know by now, the carousel is a capricious entity and it decides we will stay in the United America of stateside, despite not asking either Sai or myself first. We complete the necessary visa paperwork and through various arcane and esoteric rituals, we manage to communicate with our dear companion, the sentient fairground ride. For reasons beyond our ken, the carousel has taken a shine to some loudmouth Yankee types called the Beastie Boys, and has been eagerly scanning back issues for any mention of said combo. It locates them on the front cover of an issue from March 1987, and asks us to track down the man that interviewed them in said edition of The Hit. Well, who are we to deny the heartfelt requests of a carousel? So, here he is, folks, the journalist and author, Chris Heath. Chris... Welcome to the carousel. Which horse from the multitude of painted nags would you like to sit on? I'm speechless already. <laughs> <laughs> just just run, run by me the choices again. Well, there's just uh, it's an imaginary uh, load of old nags painted up on a carousel. What would you be looking for on a horse were you to, to choose one? Would you prefer quite a small, cheeky little one, freshly painted, colours, just anything?
2: Um... I don't know. I think uh, I'd, I'd, I'd like that quiet, that quiet horse sort of in the inner bit at the back, where you're just kind of watching everything that's going on. But oh, people, uh, yes. Okay. Yeah. May not even have a name.
0: Yeah. It's but just some gentle undulation.
2: Yeah, yeah. I like it.
1: That's, already, that's given us a lot of psychological insight into the mind of a journalist. I
2: think. I'm like an open book, except like an open book that's like a closed book.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so in celebrated and highly respected tradition the carousel will creak into action once you Chris have honestly answered the following inquiry have you ever been sick in a gumboot well
2: that, that that's a that's a firm no though you know i've, I've had a lot have had a lot of discussions on the issue
1: well that's fine if it's an honest uh, answer then yeah. the carousel can then begin to spin
0: The carousel has transported us back to the Smash Hits of the 11th to the 24th of March 1987, yours for a bargain-tastic 45p. And if you want to read along with us, you can do just that, thanks to the Light Punk Never Happened and Smash Hits remembered websites. You'll find the links to the scans of this issue in the show notes for this episode, along with YouTube and Spotify playlists that include pretty much all the songs and artists featured in this issue of Ver Hits. You'll also find these links on our website, giddypoppod.home.blog, and we'll post them on our social feeds as well. Just search for the Giddy Carousel of Pop or at Giddy Pop Pod in social media land. Um, So Chris, I think before we delve into this issue of of Smashes, when did you first encounter the mag and um, what led you to working there? How, How did you first start writing there?
2: Well, the, the, actually, the, the, those, those are two very separate questions, And the, but I'll answer the first one because no one's ever asked me that, and the answer's kind of weird. <laughs> um I was at boarding school, and I was, you know, I was music crazy, but I was like people were then. I was like, you know, Ridden the Enemy and Melody Maker and Sounds. Um And I had a very good friend called Simon. We had a band at school. And he had a younger brother called Pete who came, who was a couple of years younger than us, and he'd come and sit in my room and listen to records because you're only allowed a record player when you're older. And and he was crazy about music. And uh, and he started having this magazine, Smash It. And so I'd look at it and wouldn't really understand what it was back then. The only reason I bring it up is that he then um, had a, has had a whole life. He, his name's Pete Kemba. And he then formed um, uh, Spaceman 3. And then became known as the man called Sonic Boom, so that that was who first showed me a copy of Smash It. Wow, he was the original Sonic Boom boy. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So that's yeah. quite, that, that's quite I, quite strange, but it's the truth. Um, so, but then I wasn't really paying attention, and um, and then I started um, when I was leaving uh, university. I started through a load of things happening. I started trying to write for magazines. I also had a weird job at a place called Compact Records. Which was uh, they're best known for having Mary Wilson, and I was sort of there. I don't know. I, I I can't really explain this. It wasn't like I was like sort of their press officer three days a week, and it was in this tiny office on Riding House Street, and you there was three there were two chairs and three people, so you got to, I got. I was the third, obviously. So I got to sit if one of the other people was out. But they sent me around all the magazines. Uh, to, and we would re-deliver all our singles every week. So every week I'd go around and re-present our singles to try and get them reviewed. And I just literally turn up at places and ask to see the reviews editor. So one of the places I sent to was smash hits and Peter Martin who was the reviews editor had come out. And so I would, I would hit sort of hit on him and say, have you got any writing? But then there was this other whole thing happening. Sorry, this is a long story, but in the meantime, I was, there's this guy called Trevor Dan, who was a producer at the BBC and he was the producer of Whistle Test. But he also moonlighted at the weekends with a radio show that he did sort of for fun on Radio Cambridgeshire. And so there was a sort of group of music aligned young people who started hanging out at this show, including me. And so he had, uh, seeing me as someone who, Maybe he saw some potential in me, but that I was kind of clueless and didn't know what I was doing. He suggested I go and see Dave Heworth, And so that started a whole thing where first I wrote for Just Seventeen. It's kind of a long story. But um, anyway, meanwhile, the Peter Martin thing was happening. And so I got a couple of albums to review. And and so I reviewed some albums. And then separate through that other dynamic, I was Dave Heworth, after a bit, suggested I go to see Mark Helen. And so I was called into the Smash It's office to go and meet with Mark Ellen to see if I was sort of suitable in some way. And I was able to say to him when he asked me this, well, actually, I've got a couple of reviews in your current issue. So I that probably made me, you know, didn't make me look too clueless. And, and actually things kind of moved quite quickly from there. So what kind of time, what kind of year would that have been? This is, this is late 1984.
1: What kind of music were you listening to yourself then? Was it very much aligned with the kind of acts that were being covered in Smash Hits then or?
2: I, I was, I was, I was sort of all over the place in that, you know, I, I was definitely, on one hand, I was kind of, kind of real kind of post-punk kind of indie boy. Mm. But then my kind of post-punk indie was also like, I was totally obsessed with sort of ABC and the associates. And the teardrop explodes and people like that. So I wasn't kind of super kind of cabaret Voltaire and crass and, you know, what some of my friends were listening to. Mm. And I was, you know, I was insanely, uh, in obsessed by the Smiths, but you know, or, you know, to have that kind of taste, you know, people now, when they think of a, a pop music magazine, they think it's such a kind of na- you know, they think it's, you know, going to be all about, you know, team pop groups. And obviously smash it's never was that. So, you know, I fit in very well, very quickly. Or um, well, there wasn't a great pivot, but I, but I, I definitely learnt very, very quickly. You know, I've always loved pop music, but I probably was, you know, behind. Uh, I had some catching up to do on some real sort of. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I couldn't have named you all of Troy's singles. <laughs> <laughs> who could? <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, so tell us uh, about the Smash It's office back then. You know what, what was the atmosphere like?
2: Uh, who were you sharing a desk with? I mean, was it, was it an exciting place to work? It was, it was, you know, the first, you know, when I was first going in and it, it, you know, it was in this upstairs office um and they moved shortly after. So, so in those first few months, it was different, but you'd, you'd go into this one back room with the people there. And, you know, it was, I mean, it was, to me, it was incredibly intimidating, but it was, it was this tiny room and there, you know, there's Tom Hibber was sitting there and Neil Tennant was sitting there and Mark was sitting there. And then the design department was sort of over to the right, but it was like tiny. And, you know, and I, I mean, the first, the first feature I wrote was about Torch Song and I was sent away to interview them and I came in and, and I was supposed to get to my job, um, but I turned up with my copy and gave it to Neil Tennant and I was expecting to go to Compact Records. I had no idea how any of this worked and he immediately just pointed to a chair and was like, sit down. <laughs> basically sit down meant sit down now you're going to rewrite it, and I was too i was too i was too scared to say I had a job to go to <laughs> so, so so I just did what I was told and sat down <laughs> and um I rewrote it and you know next thing I knew I was off interviewing King did you get any pointers on on what was needed, how you needed to rewrite it or um I, d- I did. I can't remember what Neil said. Um I remember that, you know, when I was, I, I when I was, the first thing I ever did for Just 17 was this thing that, I did asked me to suggest things and I suggested this thing about, you know, I'd noticed, I mean, you'd have had, not exactly the most amazing observation that everyone was wearing these Frankie t-shirts mm. and the whole world. Yeah. But there was an unusual thing then. And I was like, isn't there something to write about this? And they're like, great idea. And so I had to talk to Paul Morley and talk to people in record shops. And, and I wrote this thing and Dave Heworth I gave it to Dave Heworth, And, you know, I didn't know anything about how you did any of this stuff other than just trying to do it and trying to copy what other people had done. And he just sat there in front of me and went through it with a pen and cut out at least 30, at least a third of it. Mm. And I was just watching this thing because it was kind of magical because he was taking it out and I, I, mean, I could see as he was doing it that he, that nothing important was disappearing and that it was just sort of better in some way. I couldn't really understand. I couldn't really, it was like seeing a magic trick mm. and I'd never, never been edited. I didn't even, I'd never even thought to that moment that what being edited was. Um, and so I definitely remember learning a huge amount. The uh, editors uh, now would say possibly not enough uh, but, le- <laughs> but le- learning a huge amount about you know that there was something just even that there was something to learn like that mm.
0: so uh, what what was the process you know you've done a few reviews you've done your first feature that the one on torch song yeah
2: how did you progress to getting your first cover story i mean how, how did that come about Well, I mean, that, that you know, I I started doing sort of features and I'd done a couple of features and then, but it was still this upstairs office. And and I remember, you know, you've got to remember there's no mobile phones. You know, I lived in a squat on Kingston Road, which I I don't think there was a phone uh that was a squat that I'd sort of inherited from one of the go-betweens so that was a whole other <laughs> story behind that but there you go um I, and so I would literally just kind of drop in every now and again when I was in the center of town be like it it might you know that was kind of how I stayed in touch so and quite often also I'd be carrying all of my possessions because I'd assume that I'd end up somewhere that night and probably not go back to the squat and just sleep wherever I'd ended up in the evening it seems kind of weird now, but that's the truth. So I'd leave my stuff by reception, by two miles <laughs> at the reception, and and then go in. And so I, I went in this day, and there was a big argument going on. Mark Allen was basically, and of course now it makes perfect sense. It was like, it was pretty right about now. It'd be like this, week. it'd be like, well, it's just coming up to Christmas. Everyone's got plans. Everyone wants to do stuff. And basically, suddenly there's a piece for the next cover, and it's on tour with Wham! but it's over a weekend. No one wants to go. So Tom Hibbert's saying, I can't do that. I think, I don't know who else, Peter Martin or whatever, has said, and I, I can't do that. I'm busy. And I just walk in and Mark literally just turns around and says, well, Chris will do it, won't you? <laughs> uh, but but it, it it really wasn't a sort of like, we've really been looking for the cover story to launch Chris to the next level. It was just sort of a way. I mean, it really felt like just a way of showing up <laughs> everyone else. So suddenly I was, and of course I was, he's like, sure, of course I will. Um, and then I think Mark maybe was nervous because I remember him telling me, trying to explain to me how you write a big feature like this and how are you, and I remember, I remember the specific thing he, um, showed me was a piece that Neil Tennant had written about being on tour with Kajigugu that I think we, we could check, but I, I think it begins as something like something about when the first girl faints and Mark was sort of trying to, you know, show me how you sort of tell a dramatic story from something like this. Um And so anyway, that was my, as much of a template. So I had my idea and then I, then I go off on the train to, uh, I think it was Leeds the first date, and I'm supposed to cover two dates, and I see the show and and then wait, I'm supposed to talk to them the next day and see the second show, and I wake up the next day and it's all, everyone's in a panic and there's a big disaster. And George Michael's put his back out. Uh, and so the tour is postponed. So I'm like, oh, my big chance, it's gone. You know, this thing's a disaster. Um, and anyway, so I'm told that Andrew, I never see, no, I don't even remember, you know if I, I was hanging out backstage, uh, in Leeds, but I, beyond that, I don't think I even met Andrew doing all of this. Cause then I'm in the bus with George going back to London and he's like, we'll go in the bus and we'll talk in the bus. So I'm just sitting, talking to him all the way back, interviewing in the back. And then we stop at his parents' house and we go for tea with his <laughs> <Wow>. parents. <laughs> <laughs> and he, and, he, and, he enjoy, and he's like, as it's in the piece, can I have another cup of tea, mom? And the sort of gold discs. <laughs> anyway, and so I get back. And then I, I remember calling Mark Ellen from a payphone <laughs> to try and explain this whole thing that's gone wrong. And wondering, I'm kind of thinking, do they still want it? And he's like, well, what happened? And I'll like, just explain what I just explained. And then we went and we went to his parents' house. And in retrospect, I sort of think he went, no, Chris, I, I think it'll be all right. Just write it. You know, um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I, cause I, I probably thought, cause all of this was new to me and, and, and just, you know, I was just sort of fascinated and really interested, but I had no idea, obviously, what I was doing. And so I had no sense of what was normal and what was expected. So I guess I probably thought you probably usually went to people's, to people's parents' <laughs> house for a cup of tea when they were on the cover. <laughs> oh, obviously, it's, it's fantastically not the case. Um, and then the other good thing that happened that was terrible was that, so I write this piece and I'm sitting in this squat and I write this thing again and again and again, just trying to work out how to write it till I've more or less got it memorized just because I'm writing it again and again and again. I mean, it was freezing. Um, and I take it in and they're like, no, this is good. And I, I, I probably, I don't remember how to do some rewrites probably, but, and then they, and then they're like, on Wednesday, we're having like a Christmas, like party. it was like just dinner at a little tiny place. It wasn't like some fancy thing, but you should come. So I come on Wednesday and they're like, Oh, thank God you're here. And these days, those days, what would happen was the copy would go on the back of a bike to the typesetters. And then it would come back with a time set copy and the copy had fallen off the bike (laughs) and they'd lost the cover story. (laughs) So they're like, so basically they're like, well, we're going to the restaurant, um, but can you sit and write it again? Well, you know, in a lot of other situations, that would be. Pretty incredibly daunting, but the truth is, I kind of knew this thing off by heart. <laughs> I mean, I had my notebook with with the, with the whatever I transcribed in, and so I could just type it out again. So I just sat and typed it out again, like like a song you knew. <laughs> and so I typed this thing out again, and then joined them later. The thing, and so I think all of these things made me look. You know, made me look sort of better than I, you know, I mean, it's, I guess that's the luck you have sometimes. You, you get to sort of look better than, uh, you get a chance to anyway look good. Mm. And I, and, and I, I took it totally. And that, so that, that set me going on a good momentum.
0: Yeah. I think we'd call it resilient and adaptable.
2: Now. <laughs> well, something like that. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that, you know, I always think in terms of pop careers, whenever, whenever you look at greatly strategized pop careers, like I always, um, weirdly, I wrote some, had to write something at university that involved me researching the Sex Pistols story. I don't know how I got away with that, but, um, <laughs> I, but, but I remember reading that and, you know, the whole idea then, you know, the whole narrative you were told was that it had been this incredible act of calculation by Marco McLaren. But as soon as you look to what really happened, and I've thought about this a lot with lots of other things like this subsequently, what you really see is people who are incredibly quick at taking advantage of unpredictable events and then and then in retrospect they seem like they're you know seem like there's some planning involved but it's really not that it's really you know and 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 i think that you know it's a great sort of it's, it's i mean it's a wider gift but it's a great kind of pop gift the gift of like being able to take advantage of something and, and make, make something magical out of it. I'm not saying that's what I, I did a minor writing version of that, but that's, the, that's the kind of thing. I think it's interesting that that's, I think that's a sort of a thing that happens that gets often misinterpreted.
1: Okay. So moving on to the issue, uh, 45 pence, 11th to the 24th of March, 1987. Uh, looking at the front cover. We've got the aforementioned Beastie Boys, uh, photographed by Lynn Goldsmith, that they're there showing the rundies off. That's a bit outred, isn't it? a bit rude, that. Some boxer shorts, I don't want to look too closely what the other things are, but uh, it says they're wild, they're wicked, they're wonky, they're the Beastie Boys. Quite a lot of text on this one. Uh, on the front, trailed, we've got you 2 Boy George, Westworld, The Cult, Level 42, Mental as Anything, World Party, Europe, uh, songs by Nick Cayman, Freddie Mercury, Jackie Wilson, and a lot of posters. We've got Madonna, Duran Duran, Morton Harkett, Paul Weller, Janet Jackson, and Wayne Hussey, who would later uh, be on the front cover of the next one, as we, as we found out when we spoke to Barry a little while ago. <laughs> uh, and uh, turning to the contents page inside, we've got all the aforementioned stuff that we had on the cover. Also songs by uh, The Style Council, Waiting. Still In Love by Jackie Graham. Alison Moyet's Week in the Presence of Beauty. The Great Pretender, Freddie Mercury. Nick Kamen's Loving You is Sweeter Than Ever. Everything I Own by Boy George. Beastie Boys, You Gotta Fight For Your Right To Party. Ship of Fools by Will Party, Jackie Wilson's I Get the Sweetest Feeling, Banana Armour's Trick of the Night, Frankie Goes to Hollywood with Watching the Wildlife, and finally, Debbie Harry with Free to Fall. So that's what's going on in the issue. We've got a full-page picture of Madonna ready to cut out and stick on someone's bedroom wall should they
0: wish to. Well, I don't think she looks like she's wrapped herself in somebody's curtain or something. I'm not quite sure yeah, what she's doing. Sh- what is the look she's going for there? I'm not...
2: I, I, isn't it low-key sexy but spiritual? Is that what it is? I, that's what I'm uh, interpreting it as. Right, okay. <laughs> we'll go for well, that. Right, I, 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 I'm not think I'm getting <laughs> it from it. I'm just saying I think that that's, that's the intent I, I'm deciding.
0: Well, possibly with the, uh, the oddly placed crucifix on the, on the forehead. Yeah. It didn't catch on.
2: Uh, no, it didn't.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so should we take a look in bits do you want to have a rummage around see what bits have caught your eye
0: and we've got a whopping six pages of bits so uh we will just a light on a few things that are going on in this issue the first thing that we come across is yes the next issue is cover star wayne Hussey. uh headline wayne Hussey, a bit of a disappointment says his mom <laughs> Uh, so it's a photo of mom holding up a, a lovely school photo of little Wayne, aged seven. See, I'm wrong. We usually do talk to their mums. <laughs> there we are. <laughs> well, no, because she's been interviewed by by a local newspaper. So I think this is sort of like a, a secondhand reporting sort of thing. Um yes indeed in an exclusive interview with her local paper the Bristol Evening Post, Wayne Hussey's mom revealed that she and Mr Hussey were actually hoping that young Wayne was going to become a Mormon missionary, i.e. going around knocking on people's doors at odd hours of the day with bible in hand. Instead of which he became a disheveled pop star in a pop group called The Mission. Mrs Wendy Hussey says she fondly remembers young Wayne turning up with his guitar to perform for the Yates Church of Jesus Christ the Latter-day Saints, the local Mormon church. Wayne is not a very good advert for the church, she laughed. He left it about five years ago, and since then, he's probably broken every rule in the book. Cripes. We'd always hoped he would go on a mission. When he was about 19, a year after moving to Liverpool, he called us and said he'd decided to give up music and go on a mission. We were delighted. My husband, who was working in Saudi Arabia, said he'd stay out there for another year to raise the money for him. And we bought all the books. Then he came home at Christmas and he changed his mind." Wayne's—that must be why disappointment. Wayne's mum also let slip other piping hot hussy facts, such as how his first guitar cost six pounds and was bought when the family were on holiday in Barcelona, how his second guitar cost twenty pounds from Woolworths, how he left school with five O levels to become a trainee manager at the local co-op, but abandoned that for a career cleaning kettles at the local electricians, and how he used to be a nice, sensitive boy with short hair. But you have to have an image to get noticed, don't you, quips his mum. Mind you, I did feel embarrassed the day we had to clear the ladies' changing room of the local clothes shop because he wanted to try something on. Not only that, but Mrs Hussey also reveals how Wayne dreamed up the name for his group. He'd been tinkering on his guitar and noticed a mission amp and then opened a drawer and found a mission diary, which we'd bought him. That clinched it. He said it was probably the closest thing we'd get to having him in go on a mission. Quite. <laughs>
1: Nice little payoff at the end there, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I thought, <laughs> a re- re- really nice piece that, and uh, yeah, very, very, very entertaining. It was bits sort of like a communal thing? Everybody would contribute,
2: as it says, bits to it. It was, but it usually, usually at any given time, there's one or two. You know, someone was bits editor. I think I was earlier on, um, and. Um, you know, I remember doing a lot of it with Tom Hibbert. But then you'd 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 cast bits out because there'd be a phone interview. So suddenly, whoever is available or who wanted to would do the phone interview or some other thing. So it could it was a bit it was it was sort of they tended to be in any issue because I a key kind of team. But then it could be anyone too. Because um, I was looking at this the, the bits in this issue, I was sort of surprised. I don't think I wrote a single a single story in bits this issue, which I think that that's unusual. Um, but I think it's probably because I was, you know, as 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 you can see from the issue, I was, I was quite busy.
0: Yes, <laughs> just a bit. Um, Gavin, anything leaping out to you in these pages of bits?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's there's plenty to get your teeth into, isn't there? And uh, as Chris was saying before about the broad church that is smash-its, I mean, it's kind of got everything, hasn't it? It's got the cult, it's got thrash metal... It's got the Christians photographed outside on the pavement. <laughs> it's got the San Remo Pop Festival, Lou Reed, Tom Verlaine. There's all sorts in it. I mean, I quite like the big piece on um, the San Remo Pop Festival because at the time, I think it was something that was very well known in this country. And um, I love the uh, the rivalry between Spandau Ballet and Duran Duran that gets talked about in this. It really made me chuckle. We know that there was a lot of uh, interband rivalry between them, but they're all at this kind of. I mean, it's a pop festival. Really, it's a TV festival in, in Italy. Um, the Smiths are there. Nick Kamen's there. Pet Shop Boys, Eighth Wonder, Style Council, uh, and, yeah, the Spans and Duran Duran. Um, it says, uh, there's no doubt that Spandau Ballet consider themselves star of the show. They're strutting about, shadowed at every turn by a platoon of walkie-talkie wielding security men who clamp giant hands over any camera lens in sight and keep up a constant running commentary on the group's whereabouts, e.g., Gary Kemp's turning right, left, he's out of the door, over, etc, etc. Apparently the Spans sell twice as many records in Italy as Duran Duran, but nevertheless, the festival has turned into a bit of a battle of the titans between these two groups. The previous night, Duran Duran had suddenly turned up out of the blue and told the organisers that they'd do an unscheduled special guest appearance in the marquee. They'd been supposed to go on before Spandau Ballet, who were topping the bill, but accidentally arrived so late that they had to go on last, thereby upstaging the Spans. Tonight, Spandau Ballet were convinced they topped the bill, as Duran was scheduled to appear far earlier in the evening. What they didn't realise was that their rivals were actually appearing in the glamorous Snoot (laughs) Theatre at peak viewing time, presented by the Italian version of Terry Wogan, along with Whitney Houston and the Bangles, i.e. an event with far more status than appearing in a tent halfway up a hill at three in the morning. Or... As Neil Tennant so succinctly put it, Duran Duran two spanned our ballet mill. <laughs> Honestly, pop stars.
0: <laughs> yeah. I like the the pet shop boys are, are uh, misbilled as the pet shoe boys, is that that's is that right, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Obviously you, you all knew Neil at, at the magazine. Was it a bit like having a man on the inside?
2: I guessing you all kept in touch with him to some degree. I you know, I, I it's a tempting kind of Narrative. I don't, I don't think it, for the most part it was, cause, um, you know, I think just occasionally at a pop festival, you might have some of that, that what's reflected here. But no, I mean, it was, it was stranger, you know, the rise of the, the rise of the petrol boys. It was, you know, it's sort of hard to explain, you know, cause you sort of see it in the magazine where you have these sort of almost this, it's a, it's a mixture of, I, mean, I think personally, People were delighted, but it was like this sort of puzzlement because it was sort of hard to see. Is it was hard to understand someone who came from, you know, you know, cause smash hits, while it's incredibly celebratory of all these people is also all about sort of bringing people down to kind of <laughs> down to earth <laughs> at the same time. And so, and so when you've got those kind of those two things going on with someone who you know and who's from your world, it's sort of confusing. And I felt like for a bit, there were those kind of. Things going on, and I think more so for people who'd known Neil longer. You know, I, I was sort of in the middle. I'd, I'd you know, I'd, I'd worked with Neil, but not for very long. I think, it, in some ways, I think it was easier for me to uh, to to write about them and and to to completely embrace what they'd become because of that.
1: Is there anything in this issue of Bits,
2: uh, Chris, that really caught your eye? Um. Well, I was. <laughs> There's a, there's a competition to win these stand-ups of Freddie Mercury. Uh, and it, and it reminded me of something weird, which is that presumably it was in the previous issue. I was on the set of that video. Ah. Um, and when I, as I got into, into my cab to leave and it was saying, you know, Freddie Mercury didn't really do interviews, but he would like talk to you and meet you and, you know, let you be around. And, and it was pretty interesting. Uh, and, uh, but as I got into the, uh, into my cab, the PR, Roxy Mead, handed me an unpainted version of one of these cutouts. <laughs> um, which hadn't been used. Uh, I, I mean, it's an act of sort of kindness, I guess. It was, you know, <laughs> and, and I, I wasn't unpleased, but it was sort of perplexing. And I took this home, but I believe that, I believe that, but that, that, uh, but I, I think I know where it is. It's behind a filing cabinet and I still have it somewhere. So, so, so somewhere there's a, uh, There's this Freddie Mercury cutout, which now is, you know, I guess now it's so long ago. That's kind of, kind of, quite weird that I have it. Yeah, I mean, Smash (laughs) It's had fifty of them to give away in this competition. Yeah, but but mine's not mine's not pink. It's like mine's black and white. It's it's unpainted. It's uh, I don't know if that makes it better or worse, but it's. uh, (laughs) I I do remember (laughs) that. But uh, we did a competition in bits where uh, Freddie Mercury had had that single with, Mon- I don't know how you could pronounce the name probably, Montserrat Caballé. Caballé, I think. Uh, that sounds right. Uh, you know, Barcelona. And they'd said, oh, you know, you could give away the arch from this video. <laughs> <laughs> and so we had to run this competition for the arch in the video. We didn't know what we were giving away. <laughs> and suddenly... <laughs> This arch turned up and it was too big to get upstairs. <laughs> so, so for, I, as I remember it, like for like a week, when you went into the downstairs into 5255 Carnaby Street, you had to, I, I can't remember if you could get past it or go through this huge <laughs> arch. There was the competition prize that we were trying to work out how to, uh, to get <laughs> to whoever had won it.
0: Just another day at the office. Yeah.
2: They, well, that, that's the thing. The, the, these things sort of seem very much like of a normal week then. And when I, think, <laughs> when occasionally they pop into your head, you're like, y- "You what? <laughs> I'd love to know who won that." <laughs> no, I, I, I would. That, that's an article I would read. Is what someone did with the arch from Barcelona. <laughs>
0: Sure, it'll turn up on Antiques Roadshow before too long or Cash in the Attic or something. <laughs> um, I was looking at the birthdays in um, in bits. <laughs> oh, yeah. And you've got, um, let's see, Steve Harris of I Maiden, he's 30. Adam Clayton of u or Adam Clear of Clayton of U2, is 27 years old. Uh, Terry Hall from the Colourfield, 28. Shaka Khan's 34. And on the 16th of March, 1987, Reg, Reg, Snipton, of The Useless Toadstools was 31 years old. <laughs> Happy birthday, Reg. Can't believe he was 31. Yeah. I know. Amazing. Yeah, yeah don't, don't,
2: not not strictly an actual person, but nonetheless. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, one of those from the... Is that from the mind of Tom Hibbert by any chance?
2: That's, that's yeah. totally... The only... I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's Tom. The only... They're, they're only Often, Vicky McDonald was good at sort of running with with either things Tom had already said or, or 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 similar things. So, why well, it could have been her, but I, it's either her or Tom.
1: We turn the pages. We we have a double page Avanti at CNA spread. It's a, very much a curiosity, curl the cat kind of vibe going on there. I think, and we get to. Chris one of your stories the return of boy George it says he's back he's fine and he's talking about Culture Club, Waxworks, Morrissey, Teesmaids, Morton Harkett, Railway Trains and the pressures of success and failure. Exclusive interview Chris Heath. So I mean at this point um, Culture Club had pretty much split up after a difficult few years with uh, ever diminishing chart positions uh, Boy George had had his heroin addiction uh, and that had been the subject of a lot of uh, attention the tabloids and then there were court appearances. So it was it was barely out of the newspapers um, in the sort of months preceding this. I'll just sort of set the scene a little bit and then Chris we can maybe come to you and you can tell us what you remember about uh, this interview. You say, Boy George starts talking and talking and talking. He's always talked like a runaway train and today is faster than ever rushing from one thought to the next so quickly that he can start off a sentence talking about South African politics and end up musing how horny Nick Kamen is without taking a breath. Perhaps he's just relieved that he's finally getting back to being a pop star again. After all, the last year has been a nightmare. His messy struggle against heroin addiction, the death of several close friends, and a stream of court appearances that, much as he can uneasily joke, it's so 1986 all that, aren't over yet. Outside the gate of Boy George's mansion are about six or seven fans. No matter that it's snowing, no matter that there's not time for more than 30 seconds chat before he goes in, no matter that George hasn't had a record out for a year, there's at least a few of them there day in, day out. But then that's the sort of devotion that Boy George inspires, the sort of devotion that made him the biggest pop star in the universe about three years ago. Um, You seem to have a really nice rapport with him in this interview, Chris. I'm guessing it wasn't your first meeting with him.
2: I, re- I was trying to remember that. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd met him. I'd, I think I'd done some. A lot, a lot of people. I'd, one of the first things I did for Smash Hits was go round. So to digress, was to go round with a UA tape recorder, recording Christmas messages uh for christmas 1984 which is a kind of it's an incredible thing i just would go around all day and i'd go and visit wham in the studio i'd go up to the eurythmic studio and then i'd have to meet meatloaf and a thing and i was just meeting pop stars just to do these christmas messages and I, i visited new order you know it was like you know and i think i must have met him there because i can remember sitting in this um in this theatre when he was rehearsing something, and I can't think of any other reason I would have been there. Um, but I didn't really know him, um, and uh, and this was, you know, you know, I mean, it's interesting, you know, I, I re- rereading this because the story, because it, on one hand, it's very smash hits that we totally acknowledge the real context, mm. you know, you know, we don't sort of pretend that some really. Hard, difficult, real world things have been happening. But, you know, in that bit you read out, we're sort of both acknowledging it and finding a way of kind of containing it within a world that we can talk about. Mm. Um, but this, I, you know, I remember the, the, this, this was a tense thing, you know, he, you know, I mean, the, the, these things, you know, it, ref, it refers to in the story. You know, the story that he had, I can't remember the, how long, you know, he has so many weeks to live or whatever. Um it wasn't like necessarily you thought that, but, you know, there were terrible things happening all the time and he hadn't been seen for a long time. You know, he he looked very, you know, this this photo sort of manages to sort of split the difference between how he'd been looking in the papers the last year and how he looked before in the Culture Club. Um, but he looked pretty, he'd been looking really rough. And... You know, very quickly after this, he became a pop star again, you know, because this is his first solo single, Everything I Own, and it goes to number one. And even though it wasn't sort of smooth after that, you know, it sort of, it sort of reset things. But that wasn't the context I was going in. And I always remember it was like nerve wracking. You know, you didn't know how he'd be. You didn't know how he was. You, you know, I think he was nervous doing it you know, it's sort of good for an interviewer. I think he compensates for the nervousness by, in a very Boy George way, almost sort of over-speaking and over-sharing. So, you know, I think it's a pretty, it's a pretty engaging interview, you know, and, and I liked him and I, I liked him, always liked him as a person and I like what he does, but it, it didn't feel like a very calm, easy, oh, here, we're just doing an interview thing. It felt like it was highly charged and that everyone was a bit tense about how it's going to go
1: was there sort of some added pressure because of the amount of time had been in the tabloids recently, and were you kind of aware that this interview would get picked over by newspapers and stuff or or do you not really think about that when you're doing it?
2: I have to say i I don't think we Collectively thought about that very much. I, funny enough, our sort of main thought in that way was that we were always doing the kind of truth checking of the tabloids, you know, in a way, in a weird way, what muttering sort of what is, is apart from anything else, it's kind of like going through all the things that's been said about the world of pop and trying to give you our guide to what's nonsense and what's not. Um, so I, you know, I, I think we, I think we're so used to the fact that That what we said would get used or misused in the in the tabloids that we didn't didn't think think about somehow also it's like even though it was a big deal you did something and it could be a really big story in the tabloids it's I think it's different to how it would be now if if you could if you could transpose the world of Smash It's to now which of course you couldn't but if you could you know when something becomes what then would have been a tabloid story now it would be something that would be you know, all viral, all over the world, and and with so much more impact, and and in everyone's, in everyone's consciousness. And I think we'd have had to, that would have, that would definitely would have changed how we thought about what we did. I think, but no, I don't remember thinking about that, to be honest. It's interesting that I don't, because I am surprised that I that I don't, I don't remember thinking about it for this story. And I don't remember thinking about it generally in that period. I mean, there's, there's no sense in this at all that any topics are off limit. Was that
1: very typical for the time? That there wasn't really anyone saying beforehand, you can talk about this, but
2: don't mention that. I think I think we sort of had. I can't remember any examples where we where we were stopped or we agreed or anything. I think we had a general sort of principle that you should be able to talk about everything, hmm. and but you could sort of trust us to. It's hard to describe what we were, but I think we were always kind of fair. Um, people didn't always love the way we, what we'd ask and the way we asked things. But, but I think there was a sort of very strong moral through line. And I think we felt that and we felt that people should feel it. I felt that anyway. Um, and, and I think, you know, and I, I remember thinking, but I think it was something we discussed. It's like we should, it's what I still think is you should be able to ask anything and people should also be able to not answer. You know, that's where the control should come. You don't have any, you know, I can't bear it when when writers in any context are going, oh, you owe us an answer. You have to, you know, no one owes you any answer at all. But th- but they should be able to ask the question and then take it from there. One of the questions that you ask, and it feels like you're almost
0: giving Boy George a, an opportunity to kind of dismantle himself Um, it's on the the second page of the interview, do you you now regret saying all that teasing stuff about how your favourite sexual position was cuddling, how you had been celibate for two years and that you really preferred a nice cup of tea? Uh, And and his response laughs, I'm just a liar, but who cares, it isn't easy being perfect and there's no such thing as a perfect person. And there is a sense, you get a sense that he's kind of coming out the other side of, of what he's been through not just in, in the previous year with, with all the court cases and, and the, you know, the, the, the heroin stuff that had been widely reported in the tabloid papers, but also out the other side of, of fame, of Culture Club and of being Boy George. And it's almost like you've given him that opportunity to kind of dismantle it a little bit and and be be honest about himself and to show that actually he does know himself now.
2: No, I, I think that... that, that... That would have been our kind of instinct. I mean, I, you know, when I reread that, I was like, I slightly drew my breath in, like thinking, wow, I just, you know, it's quite, you know, uh, you know, it struck me as quite impudent. But then my second thought is, no, it's, it's a good, and it's also, it's a good way of asking it because if he wanted to sidestep away and not lean into where he went to, he could have done it very, very easily. And he would have found a very funny way of doing it too. Um, but, but instead it gave him the opportunity to say that which was, you know, because the, the way that he handled these questions in, in the height of Culture Club's fame was kind of, it was a great kind of pop music stance, you know, so I'm not even criticizing it. But at the same time, I'm like, you know, it's like, you know, you, you should be able to return to those things and try and understand... What's, what's true or not true? You know, I, I, I don't know if it was part of what was in my mind, but obviously one thing that had happened in, in the intervening period is that Dave Rimmer's book, Like Punk Never Happened, had come out that obviously, you know, it was, it's a, it, that's a great book and it, and it, but it shows a very, very, you know, it's a very real reported book about the world of culture club that totally undermines the kind of pop narrative of 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 the culture club had and so i you know i think i i don't know if i was specifically thinking that but i think that was the sort of environment with which i'm kind of saying you know you know where are we now on this i think that and in that sense i think it's a hey, I think it's a fair thing to ask but i think the answer makes it even more you know you know fair to ask
0: yeah i mean it's it's kind of a hard contrast for for us on the podcast in that the the last issue that we looked at was from 1982 and that was right at the beginning of uh culture club's uh big success and they're in new york yeah enjoying their success um you know and, and riding high on it and and just having fun with it and now you've got this sort of four and a half years later it's a really sharp contrast. To, yeah.
1: Yes, I thought of that exactly. Yeah.
0: To kind of look look at those. Yeah, there, there's the beginning. There, there's there's the end. Well, it's the end of, of Culture Club, how how we how we knew them first time round. Because you can also see in the one that we did uh, last time just those very
1: tiny beginnings of the little fractures between the band in terms of George and John doing a lot more of the press and the promotion. And the other two kind of just enjoying themselves more, and he complains about it a little bit there, doesn't he? But then it, does, yeah. it gets talked about a lot more in this, and and you can see that over time those fissures have widened and widened, and you know, it's kind of uh, broken the band. And um, I, I, I imagine George was like a, a terrific interviewee as well because he he is so open and he's and he's very self aware. You know, he talks about the fact that he changes his mind a lot. And he's very uh, contrary, isn't he? And he'll say one thing one minute and then say, oh, I didn't really mean that. And he can be like quite sort of bitchy sometimes about people and then just say it was all just a laugh. And he really kind of, he moves around a lot, but he's a perfect smash-its pop
2: star really, isn't he, for this kind of time, I think. I think so. Although, you know, he's, I think two things are happening in parallel here in that he's he's kind of a great pop star and really interesting. He's also kind of a mess, Hmm. You know, I don't think that's hindsight. I think that it would be totally inappropriate and rude for us to have pointed that out. And also, you know, I'm not even criticizing someone for being a mess. Life's, life's tricky and he'd had some really tricky life and he, and he was still, he was making great records and he was a great pop star. But you know, this is someone talking who's not a hundred percent on top of everything. And I, th- I feel like you could see that he doesn't need pointing out to the readers beyond giving the context.
0: Do you remember having a sense of that that, that, that he wasn't necessarily 100% better?
2: I remember thinking he was very fragile when I talked to him. I can remember where he was sitting up on this platform and he he seemed fragile, like, kind of, am I up for doing this? And there were people running out. I think I'm right in so saying, I think his mother was downstairs in the kitchen too, and I don't know if that's mentioned. And yeah, it felt like there was a supportive structure around And that, you know, it was someone fragile.
1: Do you think, uh, and this is by no means a criticism because I think it's a a really well written piece and uh, very engaging read. But if you were doing a a similar kind of interview now, would you, you know, for for a magazine like Smash It's, would you kind of write it the same sort of way? Or do you think it it would be, would, would it be kind of written differently now and sort of in
2: a different style? I don't know. It's such, there's so many parameters of that. Of like, yes. are we in 2023? Cause you know, you, you know, we talk about all kinds of things. Yeah. Um, in, in very different ways, you know, the fact of how things are disseminated. So I think changes the way we have to write about things. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm always sort of a slightly taken aback by, by sort of how pushy I, pushy I am in a way <laughs> when I read. Things like this, but but then that's what you're supposed to be doing, and and I think it was totally genuinely done in a, in a sense of real genuine engagement and and genuine interest. I mean, that's why people tell you things because you're interested and you and you and you and you're asking sincerely, and I think I was asking all of that sincerely and trying to you know and and not trying to put people in a corner or ask them awkward things, but say, tell me about your life now, and you know, and I feel like on that level this 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 is that.
1: I like the bit about uh, what George talks about pop stars being like soap opera stars because it's very kind of smashes, isn't it? You, you ask, uh, you say, do you feel that the ups and downs of your life have turned into a very public national soap opera? And he says, I think all pop stars are like soap operas. Take Morrissey, he could be Queen Victoria. And he just says, I'm not amused and it's wonderful. <laughs> People like Morrissey really make me laugh. I met him in Paris and he thought I was vastly aggressive. He was just doing the wave of the glove. Go away, bit that didn't bother me. I wanted to meet him and I think he's interesting and I and I like that, that he's, you know, despite, he's, as you say, he's clearly uh, having some difficulties at, the, at this time but you feel like he still really enjoys the kind of the cut and thrust of being a pop star in that way and kind of him and Paul Young are kind of teasing each other about the way they look and, I mean, he, he, see, he says he's okay with it, he seems okay with it, and I think, I think that's part of it, and he kind of takes the mickey a bit out of Wayne Hussey. You <laughs> <laughs> say, do you get annoyed when people say Wayne Hussey looks like you? Who's Wayne Hussey, the singer in the mission? God, he doesn't look anything like me. My nose is
0: straight. <laughs> <laughs> that's a little bit uh, discussing Neil Tennant here. Um, you ask, uh, George, um, when you were giving Neil Tennant his BPI award, you said that you'd punched him for something he wrote about once. Um, Is that true? Well, I was going to punch him because when we first played Heaven, he couldn't get in and he was really furious and he wrote this thing saying that I sounded like David Sylvian of Japan, which was a load of rubbish. So Mikey and I attacked him at this disco. I'm not like that anymore. Actually, I think what the Pet Shop Boys have done is really good. It shows that people can sit in their bedrooms and create something that goes to number one in America. I really like their records. I didn't want to and I didn't think I would. I bet he feels really differently about pop stars now though. Lots <laughs> sort of like apologising on one hand but there's still some of that bitchiness there that the, especially the line it shows that people can uh, sit in their bedrooms and create something that goes to number 1 in America. <laughs> and, you
2: know, like the picture was records were not made in a bedroom. It's like it's a little hobby. No, it's uh, it's, <laughs> the, 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 it's it's so patronizing that it's beyond belief. <laughs>
0: We move on a few pages and get to RSVP. Want someone to write to? Send in a postcard with your name and address in block capitals plus a few words about yourself to RSVP. Uh, Quite a few people have done that, some people from across the world. So the usual places from around the UK, but there's also people from uh, Japan, Sweden and India. Uh, now there was there was one. I'm not going to read out the whole thing, but I, I think it's it's kind of indicative of you know when you're when you're the sort of age that you would have written into Smash Hits, what you would have done about your age. Hi, we're two boys who are both nearly seventeen. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then yeah, there's, there's there's quite quite a few there. Um, I mean, the, the one that I would have probably written to. But I wouldn't have qualified for it. Uh, it was this one. Hi, where two lads looking for female pen pals to write to. We both hate anything to do with Wham, Madonna, or Nick Kamen, but a Madam Bowie, Fuzzbox, Billy Idol, Big Audio Dynamite, and Iggy Pop. And that's Cookie and Ziggy, who are in Norfolk. So I would have written to them, but I wasn't a girl. So there we are. <laughs> that's that's the avenue closed down right there. Uh Gav, anyone that you would have uh, written to? Oh definitely, yeah. I found uh...
1: Bottom of the uh, the third column. 16-year-old male seeks correspondence from anyone into the cure. Echo and bunnyman and most indie chart music, especially the Jesus and Mary chain, Primal Scream, Stump, etc. It wasn't very often Stump got a mention in Smash It, so uh, <laughs> I, th- I think I'd have, I'd have been wanting to write to him. So, as I often do, I looked him up online. Oh, yeah. Found him. Found Ronnie. No. Found him through the Facebook page of his radio show, uh, which is called <laughs> Cobwebs and Strange. And uh, I sent him a few questions. He was very nice, very, uh, answered all my questions very quickly. He said, uh, I basically, first of all, I said, is this you? I mean, he, ran a, he did a radio show when he was into music, so I figured it probably was. But he said, yes, this is indeed me. It was a bizarre experience. Very odd that you should get in touch regarding this. I've often told people about it, but have long since lost the clipping. Now, this is astounding. Unless it was a, a typo, uh, how many replies he got. What do you reckon, Sai? Have a ballpark figure. How many replies do you think he might have got for that stump and Jesus and Mary chain and Smash hits? 30 to 50. 2,000. What? <laughs> That's what he said.
2: I mean, I the reason I believe it is because, you know, the the mailbag for Smash hits. it was like huge mailbags coming in every time we did anything. It was, you know, there, there's just such a, you know... and. If you think about, you know, there wasn't like you couldn't you couldn't like like someone on Instagram or anything. This would you know, these were your these were your ways of of engaging. Yeah. I always think it's amazing that we printed the addresses looking back. You know, you couldn't imagine (laughs) any more recent era where that would have been okay. No. Uh, But but I never heard of anything untoward happening or anything. You know, so I think it's kind of amazing... Th- oh, no, maybe you know better, but... or you're about to tell me something <laughs> well, I was just going to say, so okay. <laughs> Ronnie said he received
1: over 2,000 replies. He said, once my friends and I weeded out the psychos, we wrote to about 20 each.
2: <laughs> it says... um
1: there was one very odd one in which the person writing told me that two of her brothers were in loyalist terrorist organisations. That one went straight <laughs> in the bin. I was on first name terms with my postman, Norman. Brackets. He would regularly hand me sacks of mail while I was waiting at the bus stop to go to school. The letters came from all over the world. I guess it was in star hits in Australia as well. So uh, thank you very much for that, Ronnie. It's much appreciated. Uh, I did ask if I could give out details of his radio show. And he said, absolutely, the more the more advertisements, the better. So it's called Cobwebs and Strange. Uh, there's a website with the Mixcloud links, uh, cobwebsandstrange.weebly.com. We'll put a, a little uh, link to that in the show notes. Um, very interesting show. It is hundreds of episodes, and it's just a, a big, crazy mix of, uh, of all kinds of music. So uh, maybe we'll get a few extra ones from that, Ronnie. But thank you, Ronnie, for, uh, for answering my ridiculous questions many, many years later. Did you ask him whether he's, still, whether he's still big on Stump? I didn't, actually. Now I should have asked him if, if he's still... Well, I'll follow up. I'll let you know, Chris. <laughs> we'll do a little postscript. Still big around these parts, so, you know. <laughs> How much is the fish? Stump never did it for me. I like the idea, but... Yeah, some songs were a little bit chewy to listen to, but, you know, Buffalo is, uh, is great for sure and what's the uh Charlton heston one is that is it called Cheltenham heston
2: <laughs> it is called Charlton yeah heston. okay the Cheltenham heston one called chelton heston <laughs> wow i really when i woke up this morning i didn't think i'd be having a debate about stum well i'm i'm glad we could bring that debate to you chris i guess <laughs> no no, no it's, not a, it's not a it's not a bad thing just just unexpected
0: <laughs> just unexpected oh well the best things in life are So we'll leave RSVP there, skip on, uh, well, just uh, the next page, I think it is, and uh, this is Westworld. Let's just make brilliant records. Westworld don't want to play concerts. They try to avoid having their photo taken. They're not very fond of doing interviews. All they really want to do is eat pizzas, photograph Tony James tottering along a cobbled street (laughs) in high heels, avoid celery... And make very good records. Fair enough, pipes Sylvia Patterson. So, this is a, a little piece on the Sonic Boom Boy Hitmakers Westworld. And the piece you know, just seems to be about you know, just introducing the, the band a little bit you know, about how they got together. Uh, and then there's the revelation that um, the guitarist, Durwood, was formerly in Generation X. And you know, what follows is a few paragraphs about his uh, former bandmates. I'm just going to read uh, some of that out, if you don't mind. Um, now, of course, Westworld are superstars or something, and they're not peeved in the slightest that a few people think their tune sounds a teensy smidge like Zig Zig Sputnik, Durwood. Well, I mean, I was in Generation X for four years with Tony James, and we've obviously got the same sort of ideas now. Same as Idol, brackets. That's Sir William Billiam of Idol. It's all rock and roll, isn't it? What Idol's doing is Americanized rock and roll. What Zig Zig Sputnik did was not well thought out rock and roll. A bit eccentric. What we're doing is hopefully somewhere in between and better. Elizabeth, and we've got songs. Durwood, and a singer. Unfortunately, Martin couldn't sing. He couldn't even sing badly. Nick, he's the drummer, he can't walk in his shoes either. He can't even play football in his shoes. Durwood leaps up gives a demonstration of Martin Degfill not being able to play football very well in his shoes very lifelike actually Elizabeth I saw Tony James run down the street once points her toes and flails her hand around on her hat pineapple in the wind Durwood the worst thing about him is that he lives down a cobbled mews leaps up to give a demonstration of Tony James not being very good at walking down his cobbled mews even more (laughs) lifelike actually I'd love to get a photograph of that. <laughs> Quite. <laughs> uh, and then the, the rest of the piece is the uh, cartoon images of the band uh, with, with little profiles of
1: them. I mean, Elizabeth Westwood seems a bit more exciting because she's from Washington, D.C., and she almost got shot in a record store, we find out. Um, so I used to work in this record store in Washington for about three years and got held up twice in a month with a sawn-off shotgun both times. This guy just pulled this sawn-off shotgun out of his trousers and held it right into my stomach. Give me the money or you're dead, he said, and I turned completely white. So I gave him all the money, got away with a lot, and then a month later his girlfriend held me up. Me, me. That was a really bad scene. She um, comes over to London and uh, is living over here, goes to art school and uh, meets the other musicians. We've already talked a bit about Durwood, who was in Generation X. Uh, he talks a bit about his life. And then I thought with um, with Nick, who is the uh, the guitarist originally from Wales, I feel like he may be over-embellishing uh, a story just to make it seem a bit more interesting for the Smash It's readers. He he talks about uh, a fear of celery. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure anyone would that frightened of it. He says, I've got a real phobia about it. Oh, yeah, I can't bear it. I can't smell it. I can't touch it. Oh, no. You know how you get those little tubs of coleslaw? Well, if there's just one little piece of celery in it, I know, and it's an absolute fear. I was living in this flat once, and when I came home from work and was going to my room in the total darkness, someone had rigged up this device so that when I got to my door, I felt this bit of string on my boot, and the next thing, all this celery came flying at me, (laughs) demonstrates fending off several pounds of celery from his chest. Oh, it's terrible. A morbid fear of celery. Yeah, jings, to say the least. Now, I'm not calling him a liar, but I'm not sure anyone would really rig up a trap like that. Does that sound real to you? <laughs> Maybe slightly exaggerated. Yeah, I reckon. <laughs> but you know, it's fine for what
2: it is. It's and their their moment on the carousel was was brief. You know, it's a shame when there's a group that's so sort of smash itsy in a certain way that it doesn't quite fire, and I don't think they quite fire. Although I, you know, I, I think I'm right in remembering that we refused to do a piece unless we had a photo you know i think they would they very much wanted to just be cartoons that's what sylvia's referring to in the introduction but i think we would have thought that would you know that just didn't fit with us it didn't seem too manipulative so maybe we undermined their magic <laughs>
1: We turn to another feature of, of yours, Chris. The, the cover feature, no less. Beastie Boys. Uh, so it says Beastie Boys. Their names are MCA, Mike D and Ad Rock. They're the most obnoxious pop stars in the history of the world. They're causing complete mayhem in every town they go to across America. And they invited Smash It's along to join in the party. So, Chris, you were there uh, and Paul Ryder was doing the photos. Um, again, a bit like Boy George. A lot of tabloid interest in uh, in this artist. Uh, they were quite notorious I remember at the time, as a, as a kid, there was kind of the sense that they'd taken the, the mantle from Frankie Goes to Hollywood in terms of sort of outrageousness and controversy. Uh, fight for your right to party was climbing the charts. And at that time, they were probably the most kind of exciting thing that was going on in pop. When you got the call to, to do this piece, how did you react? Was it, were you like, "Oh, this is going to be exciting or was there a degree of trepidation? I
2: don't know. I think for better or worse, I don't know that I really did trepidation. Um, I th- <laughs> that's probably a good thing. <laughs> <I mean. laughs> no, no, it probably was, but at the same time, but you know, I, I could have easily, um, had my comeuppance thinking like that, but I, I, I just, you know, I, I just think it was all, uh, you know, the truth is I think that I just found it all exciting. Mm. Um, but at the same time, you, you know, doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be easy or fun. Um, and in fact, this, this, i mean, it was a great experience, but it wasn't easy or fun. No,
1: I don't imagine so. That you kind of get the sense that they're performing a lot for. Were, they, were they, did they kind of have a bit of an entourage of people that they were entertaining with stories of destruction? And- yeah, but there's
2: the, 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 what you don't quite get uh, the truth of in the article is that the people they had very little interest in entertaining with their stories and destruction of destruction were these annoying people from some British magazine they didn't care about. Right. Um, that 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 sentence, and they invited smash It Salon to join in <laughs> the party uh, um, is it 's not quite how I remember the spirit of it um I, and don 't get me wrong, the end result um they they totally effectively delivered, but so I flew to dallas and i and I saw the show mm. in Dallas, which was amazing you know their, their, their first you know you 'd never seen anything like it. it was a ridiculous show I mean it was just you know it was not doing things you were supposed to do. On a stage in front of a huge audience. Um, and really exciting. And then the arrangement had been that I would travel with them overnight on the tour bus, which is described in the piece. But what's not described in the piece is that the Beastie Boys clearly were not happy with this arrangement. Um, now, if you read the piece, you'll have me, you can see me on the tour bus and they're talking about all these things. Mm. Uh, you would probably get the impression that, consequently, they were they were including me in these conversations. What actually happened was I got on the tour bus, and they absolutely were so, I think they were so annoyed that I was there. They ignored me the whole journey and wouldn't, like, refer to me or acknowledge me. I think I, I, think I remember I helped myself to drinks and stuff because they just wouldn't. <laughs> And they had some friends there who, when they finally went to bed at the back, were sort of nicer to me. Um, but and you know, and I, I don't think I, I'm not even sure I had a bed. Um, anyway, I you know, so they 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 were not friendly at all. And um, they 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 weren't unfriendly. They just were just like it was like you know they were it was like you were, someone had wandered into your private space and you weren't happy about it. That's what it felt like. And so I was on my own then. And then Paul Ryder, who I did a lot of jobs with, joined us in New Orleans. And even there, they were not. Um, I, 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 I remember at one point, because we knew they weren't going to call us before they went out of the hotel, which they were supposed to do. Paul was downstairs. I was in the room to get the call. But Paul was downstairs to spot if they left without. And then Paul <laughs> calls me from the lobby saying, they're going, we're going. And we raced out and followed them. Uh, so it was like that the whole time. And then we went, I think it's the, the final, um, the final part of, I guess you'd call it the interview. Uh, uh, they went to this, this outdoor, I think it's called Pat O'Brien's, this outdoor place in New Orleans where you have big New orleans drinks. And it was them and it was a load of the entourage and one of the support bands. And it was a big outside patio and there was, I don't know, there's anyone else out there. And let's say there were 13 of them, 12 or 13 of them. They took these big iron chairs and they made them in a big circle and sat down with no chair for me and Paul. Like literally, physically excluding us. And so me and Paul just got chairs and sat behind the circle <laughs> next to, <laughs> next to them. And, and in a funny way, I, I, I don't know, you know, in the end, they, they sort of, be, I, 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 I always I think I felt at the time a bit like it was like, they were kind of like, if we it, okay, you lot are taking our shit. So we're going to talk to you. Mm. <laughs> you know, that's what it sort of felt like, like we were sort of not, not, not like at any point, we were totally embraced, mm. but sort of, you know, we were, we were game for sort of hanging on. So they, they were, and I can't remember. And then and then there's the bit. I can't, then for some reason, I had to talk to Ad Rock, I guess, because he wasn't there that night. So I had to talk to Ad Rock in his hotel room. And then I had the very strange experience of being in his hotel room while Molly Ringwald was departing. <laughs> um, and it's, it's funny because, you know, it's, um, you know, working for Smash Hits, you got very, very used to very famous pop stars and, and, you know, it, it's, I think I was kind of good at not being starstruck anyway, but but you know it was absolutely necessary that you were totally unstarstruck if you were going to be able to do what you did. But somehow, you know, people from Hollywood that seemed kind of different. So it was just weird. Like that's that person from these movies, yeah. and they're just sort of packing their stuff in this hotel room, and it just see I just I, I think we went up in the service elevator in the hotel together. It just seems surreal
1: to me. <laughs> He says, uh, I've always wanted to meet her ever since she was on the Facts of Life Cult American TV programme, he says later. Now I go out with her. I don't know why. I hate girlfriends. (laughs) And you say, oh, so he's not in love? No, I don't think so. I guess it'd be all right, but it makes me sick. (laughs) It's an odd attitude. (laughs) It's um, amazing it didn't last. Yeah, who'd have thought? (laughs) So it sounds like it was almost kind of like a bit of a test for you to kind
2: of just, that you had to endure and then eventually you got something. No, but at the same time, you knew you were, you know, sometimes, sometimes doing these stories, and it wasn't that rare with Smash Hits, you would feel like in terms of pop culture, you were in the kind of most, if you could have plonked you down on the globe, you were in the kind of most exciting place you could be at this moment. Hmm. And I think it felt like that. Yeah. Like you were, you were, you were in the middle of something. And, you know, and they, you know, they tell these incredible stories, which, you know, can't all have been true. Um, you know, there's a story in they you know, they're telling me with great gusto, this story of tunneling vertically between two rooms in a holiday inn. Um, but, you know, there was, um, I, I don't know. know there's something, uh, you know, they, they, they were such kind of great pop stars doing that. But the quote I, I want kind of to there's a quote that I really like. Because I felt like it was kind of really true. Yes. Yeah, so and Mike D says there was a kid outside the bus tonight. Last Mike D, and he said, "You can't come to our town and take fifty thousand dollars from us and not hang out with me." And you know, continues Mike, the irony is, I do just that every night. <laughs> <laughs> but they, I don't know. They 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 were funny and you know they were they were they were smart too. You know. Uh, but um, it was a it was an experience, obviously. Yeah
1: how
2: how cynical did
1: you feel the sort of this show of outward obnoxiousness was? Did <laughs> did you feel like it was they were very knowing in what they were doing and they because he talks about um, I think one of them says it's like Johnny Rotten uh, it sells records you yell at a couple of people and the next thing you're number one in the pop chart so it seems to show that they're they're very kind of aware of what they're doing or was it just that they Did you feel like there was just genuinely them and they'd kind of got lucky and just been in the right place at the right time? Did you get a sense of that?
2: I wouldn't say got lucky. I think they were they were very smart and funny, but I think it was... I don't think anyone like that kind of sits around, stroking their chin and going, let's be outrageous and, you know, that'll get lots of attention and make lots of people like us. There has to be, you know... That there has to be a genuine spirit of, uh, of anarchy. And, you know, I mean, they're, they show with this ridiculous phallic thing going on. And at some point someone came on and sung Kung Fu fighting for, for, there must have been some reason, but I can't, <laughs> I can't work out what it was. I think it was one of their friends. I don't think it was, I think it was one of them. Um, you know, there was a real anarchic glee in what they were doing. And that seemed really real. I think that, you know, I think that, you know, as, as, as we know, they soon felt like they'd boxed themselves in a kind of corner with it. And then, and then, you know, and then they created a really, really interesting, different career, you know, that, that's most of their career following that. I don't think it was calculated. It was like, it was, they, they were just being ridiculous and bratty in a way and smart, all of the, all of the smart versions of all of those things. And they, they knew it worked, but I don't think they, they did it because it would work. That's my view anyway. I think it's interesting
0: that, um, you mentioned in the piece that they're fans of, of the comic strip, the, the, the UK comedy series and also the young ones and that they've kind of made the, had they made the parallels themselves between the characters and the young ones? Or is that something that you kind of extrapolated from, from kind of being around them?
2: I don't know. I'd forgotten that. Um, and I, I think there's a common sensibility there, but I don't think they thought they were doing an act like the young ones was an act. I just think that's part of what's going into the real thing that they're doing. Cause it, it, it does all
0: seems kind of very, very cartoonish, but it says that the beastie boys in, are in real life whether that's real life or not remarkably like the young ones on tv in other words desperately rude mindlessly stupid and horribly sexist but only when they think it's funny to be at one point during our stay mca actually explains that mike d is a combination of prick i.e rick and neil Uh, whereas i am the vivian sort of person and ad rock is mike with a bit of vivian thrown in (laughs) The main difference, though, is that A, the Beastie Boys also do all these things that are just too rude for the young ones to do on TV – B, they're actually very smart and shrewd whenever they want to be, and C, their live show is one of the greatest spectacles in the known universe. I mean, it's, it's an absolutely astonishing piece. I don't think we've encountered anything like it in Smash Hits before. It feels absolutely anarchic, outrageous, and you don't get the sense that you're kind of <laughs> being being snubbed, that you're being ignored. But I guess you do kind of allude to it a little bit towards the end when they say they finally decide to sit down with us.
2: Yeah, well, I, you know, and I also don't think, you know, it's not like I was censoring that to be nice to them or nice to anyone else. I just think it, it's interesting to talk about it, talking about the creation of the article. But if, if it had been interesting for the article and if we'd learned something more from it, I'm, I'm happy to throw any of those things in. But I just don't think it was, you know, and it's like, and in the end, if, you know, if it had been the kind of article where, you know, if I hadn't been able to bring back an authentic close-up these two boys' experienced, and maybe I needed to write about that to try and help people understand why. But in the end, we could bring that back. So, yeah, there's no need to, to know some of the way that I was uh, being dissed.
0: Yeah, well, you know, it, it just surviving that 600-mile bush journey. I mean, what's that, a good 10 or 12 hours? Blimey.
2: <laughs> yeah, no,
1: it was uh, weird. I'm, in, I'm intrigued, Chris, to, to know something from you as well about this. Bec- you may not remember anymore, but um, that story you tell about drilling through the floor at the Holiday Inn in London, uh, it says MCA looks perplexed. How do you know about that? I didn't know anyone knew about that. So it's true, yeah, he admits we did that. It was actually really funny and that they kind of talk about passing beer cans between floors and stuff. But did you have some, do you remember, did you have some inside knowledge there or do you remember where you got that story from?
2: I th- I think I think he's play acting. Okay. I think I'd read it somewhere. I, I think I don't think I had some because also I don't I don't think it can be true. I mean the the, the, the physical logistics of that yeah are improbable. <laughs> uh, you know, it's pretty extreme. It's a good story.
1: <laughs> good, very good story. Yeah, they talk about bringing in uh, sledgehammers and jackhammers off the bus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> xML deutschland maybe Heinz said the noi but not not the beastie boys i, I 'd like to believe it 's true, but i don 't
0: so we go from the uh, anarchic antics of the Beastie Boys a few pages onto the personal file of Greedy Smith, of Mental As Anything, the, uh, what was it called, Live It Up? Was that their the, the song? Yeah, the, the, the Live It Up hit makers. I mean, such is the way of smashes and, and the, way of the way of the carousel that these things can exist in, in the same universe. So, Chris, is this one of yours?
2: Well, this is, this is uh, here's a thing. So when I, uh, when I was looking at this issue, I saw this and I couldn't remember if it was mine. And then I read it and something <laughs> rang a bell, but then I still wasn't sure. So when I was in the right place, I did a bit of archaeology. Oh, this, this is a tape. This is a cassette tape. By the way, as is the way always recorded over something. So recorded over a, a pre-release cassette for dollars. We walked in love <laughs> single, a, a song I have to say I do not remember. Uh, and this is the recording of the phone interview with Greedy Smith on the twenty seventh of February, nineteen eighty seven. Wow. Uh, and we so how how we would do when there were phone interviews? There was a there was a room that we would call the lyrics room, which was had a record player in a tiny little room, and people would go in there to check the lyrics, which was an ongoing, constant thing. Because you, you know, even when the publishers sent over the lyrics, they were often wrong and they didn't match anyway what was on the records that we we like to have what was really off the record but it had this big phone recorder device it was this thing it was huge like a suitcase small suitcase kind of shape thing that you put a <laughs> cassette in to record it was that was plugged into the phone line there so if we need to do a phone interview that's where we did it so i went in there and spoke to greedy smith um and the reason i remembered it was because you know we, we stoke some context you know we would we would ask you know some sensible or at least biographical questions in personal files but they would usually spiral out into more and more surreal kind of questions um uh see your question about gumboots <laughs> and 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 you know it used to annoy it used to annoy me that people would under misunderstand why we were doing these questions cuz you know, I think people thought we were just trying to be wacky or, or surreal or just, you know, whatever. But the whole point was that if you ask someone a question like, like these things, because they're sort of off guard, but also talking about something they're not expecting in the way they answer it, whether it, whether it's in the content of how they answer it or the way they answer it, you learn a lot about them very quickly. And if you don't, we don't use it. But you know, you know, you know, we'd, you know, perennial in this era is we'd ask what color is Tuesday? Um, it's absolutely, I, I think I'm right in saying, and I hope I'm not being mean, but I think number one stole this question at some point and then asked someone of so this sort of, and then just put someone saying green or something. It's of no interest whatsoever what colour you say. <laughs> What's interesting is how you reply and how you engage with it. And if you give an answer, then explain the answer and some kind of context to it, and you might learn something really interesting. Anyway, I think I um, possibly pushed the concept quite <laughs> quite far in this. Um, <laughs> maybe in some some fear that it might not be easy to... To get a, a fascinating interview with one of mental as anything um, by asking him at the end what um, what record sleeve am I wearing on my head I, 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 would, I would like to uh, try and convince anyone listening to this that i 've had a long and quite successful career in serious journalism um, but Nonetheless, I still can justify this. Anyway, so I found this cassette and, um, and I, and it wears, and it's at the end of the interview. And so I just rewound a couple of minutes. Should we listen? Oh, wonderful. Uh, we might not be able to hear it very well, but. Finally
0: the, finally,
1: the most important question. Now, can you guess what record sleeve I'm wearing on my head as we speak? Oh, gee, this is going to be a hard one. Uh, level forty-two. No, no. I'm sure that's coming The communists. No, no, my world. No, no, no. Uh, it's a big craze. We invented it this morning. It's oh, going no, with record no. sleeves on your head. It wouldn't be a metal developing record. It. It's not, no, not I'm afraid. Well, we wouldn't rent the sleeves. Skin trade by Duran Duran. No, no. Why do you think that'd be good? <laughs> no, I don't. I haven't heard it yet, but I'm just looking at <laughs> <to> the chart. <laughs> no, unfortunately, no, it's in the chart because I think we just cut it in. It's
2: in the chat. No, I don't think it is in the chat, so you'll never get it. <laughs> anyway, it goes on
1: a while. <laughs> so there you uh, go. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> I I feel like some kind of dignified silence is uh, is needed now. Uh,
1: uh, what what could he possibly say that
0: could follow that? <laughs> I, I was I was totally into uh. that and, and I'm so sad that you could t- curtailed
2: it so so soon. I, I would say that um you know I, I, I great respect for for uh, Brady Smith for you know the way he's engaging with this and and engaging with it like Both as, you know, knowing that something sort of slightly silly and surreal is going on, but also sort of realizing that, you know, he's not being, you know, he's like, you know, just seeing where this goes and what, you know, what the the purpose of this conversation might be. And I feel like, you know, did, did, did. Didn't you feel like even in just listening to that, you knew Greedy Smith a little bit better than you imagined you would in a few seconds? Definitely, yeah. And You have a, yeah. a better
1: opinion of him than than you may have yeah, done exactly. otherwise, because he, like you say, he's game yeah. for it, and he's like, oh, yeah, I don't know, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's and, great, you know. Yeah.
2: Anyway, so oh. there you go. So yes, I did. I, I did this personal file. <laughs> and personal file, it was very much personal file was often a thing where. It would happen at the last moment. A, it would definitely happen at the last moment in the issue, but it would be kind of like, who can do this? Uh, it's happening at office one. Uh, who can do it? And quite often, there'd be a sort of shout around the office, anyone got any questions? <laughs> and then you'd you'd rush in and do it.
1: What was the answer at the end, did it?
2: Uh, yeah, yeah did it's, a, it's, rather, it's, a, it's a very, very strange answer. And it obviously really was the one thing that was closest. And I'm wearing a, It's a new single by Murray Head. <laughs> I think it, which which is uh, which is baffling um but there you go
1: yeah that's nice because then he he talk, he talks about how he'd have worn uh in a garden of by iron butterfly so again yeah. you get a sense yeah. of that, something more yeah. about him yeah 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 oh fantastic that's one of my all-time favourite ever moments in, in years of doing this podcast. <laughs>
2: <to> I'm, that. <laughs> I'm uh, gla- glad that um, my life has been worthwhile. <laughs> it really has. <laughs>
0: We uh, move on a few pages from uh, Greedy Smith and uh, and wearing record sleeves on your head to uh, some uh, centre spread pullouts, Paul Weller, uh, it was that Duran Duran, oh the lovely Wayne Hussey, there you go, centre spread this fortnight, on the cover the next fortnight, uh, the always gorgeous Morton Harkett uh, in the middle as well. A full-page advert for Genesis tonight, tonight, tonight. A few more pages, and then we get to World Party, uh, mentioned on the front cover. And I don't know, it's uh, they're not the most smash-its of bands, <laughs> really, are they? I mean, I quite liked Ship of Fools at the time, but I would have expected to to you know, more see them in Q magazine around this time, You know, I would have thought.
2: You know, there's a, there's a constant dynamic... That you know we were always very aware of, which is that if you're going to make people into smash hits, think then you, you sort of have to catch them at this moment and start introducing the readers to them. Now, in retrospect, World Party certainly at this point didn't do anything really, so it so this looks like a kind of orphan, weird indie one pager. Um, but but you know the you know very much the reason why Wayne Hussey is a centre spread is because we know we're thinking about putting on the cover and we're trying to kind of you know and i can 't remember what the previous mission piece was, but it will have it would have been it would have been done at a time like this world party piece was done when we're you know you, you know we're trying to build up the the sort of family of people we can write about and and introduce narratives and stuff because I remember we, there was some research done uh emac was doing weird research that we were not very responsive to. And they literally presented this research that basically said, and I hope I'm not being kind of thinking, so, you know, people like the cover story most. And then the other thing about the most famous thing and these other stories less. So can you do more of the cover stories? And, and uh, you know, almost was that sort of ridiculous. And we were like, yeah, no, no, you don't get what we're doing and why we're doing it. Like we know which stories they like the most, you know, but we're trying to, We're trying to have, you know, we're trying to build what they can like the most in six months and nine months at the same time as totally engaging with them with what they like the most now. You know, and so, that, you know, this world party sort of sits as part of that conversation, I think.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a a photo there of uh, Carl Wallinger and his curly hair his specs the lyrics to Ship of Fools uh, pretty heavy message going on in there yep. and uh, and then the uh, little subheading world party are really just one person Carl Wallinger he used to be in the water boys but who left them because simple minds have BO or something Tom Hibbert investigates uh, and uh, you know one of the uh, I think it's quite near the beginning of the piece Tom writes so who exactly is this rampantly unfashionable figure <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, and, and you do get the sense that they're struggling a little bit to to find him interesting. Carl's playing along a little bit as well, but it's not not quite hitting the hitting the mark. But I think you know it's it's interesting to to look at uh, Carl Wallinger's career because obviously being in uh, in the Waterboys before that, and then he was involved with with Sinead O'Connor as well, and then the the second album, Goodbye Jumbo, um, Guy Chambers was a, a big part of that one and Guy Chambers sort of you know if you follow this thread through and probably like 10 years from from World Party and Guy Chambers is working with Robbie Williams move on another decade and and you yourself Chris are working with Robbie Williams you've done uh, was it a, a couple couple of books now with him I and mean, what, what would you call them biography memoir how would you describe the the books you've done um, with or, or about Robbie?
2: I, I I always think of them as books about you know, but they're, they're sort of very, very detailed up close reportage. You know, uh, all of my books are weirdly similar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, in that, in that they're very obsessively close reported, you know, portraits of people, you know, hopefully much more in depth than one would normally get. But, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, it's not, you know, it's, a, it's really an extension of. Yeah, there's a lot of other things too, but a lot of it's extension of the kind of skills that I was learning, you know, in, in March 1987.
0: Yeah, uh, and uh, looking a bit at, at those Robbie books, I mean, did you spend quite a long time with him? Uh, I mean, you know, it's not, not like you're just traveling 600 miles with, with Beastie Boys for, for one feature. If you're doing a book, it's going to be a little more in-depth, right?
2: No, no, I mean, I was with him for, I don't remember exactly how long, but for feel, probably less part of a year You know, and uh, I'm not not the whole time, but also when I, but when I was there also in a very different from what people would normally do, I would be there when he woke up and I I would be there when he went to sleep. And that sounds like a lie, a joke. That wasn't a joke that I would pretty much literally be. And then you could, and, and if you're around with everything happening in that kind of way, you can always write about, it. it's a totally different, gives you a totally different material to write about. Cause when someone's saying something about something that happened three weeks before, you don't have to, to triangulate that with someone else's account of what happened. You were there. Or when there's some silly tabloid story, you know, you don't have to set, go to the person and say, well, what really happened? You were there. And so you, you can just get a much kind of deeper texture of the real world. The person themselves but also very much the world that they're in and the whole world of popular culture that they're in after
1: you've worked on a big project like that and you've been so deeply immersed in that other person's life what's it like when it finishes do you do you feel like are you kind of emotionally drained are you kind of glad it's finished or
2: does part of you kind of miss it a little bit what 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 are the emotions I mean, it's, uh, you're so physically, I mean, it's hard work, you know, it's sort of in the banal way. It's just, you know, so also, you know, it's, it sort of doesn't break down really like that because you're very immersed in someone's life, but then you have to remove yourself completely from their life to do the work, to write the book. So in a funny way, you've separated completely in order to do that. Um And then it's not really quite either of those things. You know, I, I, you know i've only done it with people whose company i really enjoy and who i'm really interested in. and i don't think it what i what i've done like that works unless that's the case
0: but you see that was my way of trying to make uh, talking about world party more interesting <laughs> <laughs> so i was thinking well what's what's the link here oh where can we go with this there you go <laughs>
1: So uh, the smash it's there's a spook in my gumboot, he Department presents. <laughs> it's a great supernatural debate. This is a fantastic article, and uh, this is what smash it's kind of uh, do so well. Great idea for a feature. Basically, asking is there life after death, and have you ever seen a ghost? And kind of like you were saying before, Chris, you kind of the questions reveal a lot about the pop stars from their answers because they they tend to. Uh, expand at length about their views we learn a lot about five star <laughs> <this> much.
0: Tr-
1: <laughs> we learn that they go to visit clairvoyance uh, and they believe in life after death
2: and ghosts i'm picking a very anti-five star vibe from you too no not at all <laughs>
1: <laughs> i mean i wasn't a big fan at the time but this article really makes me like them a lot more because they're they're kind of like uh, the bros of the uh, of 87 really just like, just like very, very entertaining very funny um the question is, have you ever seen a ghost? Delroy says, yes, I have. I've seen the ghost of my dad's mum. I woke up and the ghost was just standing there and it had no top half, just just to the top of her apron. I explained <laughs> the dream the next day to my dad and what she looked like, and my dad said it was his mum. <laughs> I mean, how, how he knew that, but I mean, she had no... No top half, I don't know. I wasn't frightened, there's no point. I just blinked and it was gone. Very very matter-of-fact about it is Delroy. He's a cool customer, isn't he? (laughs) Um, There's just so many terrific things in this, it's hard to know what to pick out. I'll just pick pick out one more and then uh, see if either of you uh, have got any particular favourites. Neil Tennant has asked, is there life after death? He says, I don't think so. I like to believe that you just died and that was that. Even when I was a Catholic as a boy, they said you could go to heaven or hell. And the idea of hell being pained for eternity seemed so horrible that I didn't know if I could believe in it. And, of course, heaven always sounds dead boring. And then, of course, there's purgatory where your sins are washed away. The one I used to like, though, was limbo. (laughs) If you were a baby and you died without being baptised, you went to limbo. Limbo was quite nice. I always imagined it being a kind of pale blue. (laughs) So, yeah, fantastic answers. Chris, when, when you were flicking through this, was there, was there anything that caught your eye at all?
2: No, well, I have to say, rather solipsistically, I was reading them, trying to work out which I had done. I couldn't remember. Because uh, what we used to do, and I, I, I do take a little bit of credit for this, was a couple of years earlier, I kind of s- suggested that we did. There was one, in, I think in 1985, you'll find, where something like, Do You Have Any Recurring Dreams?, and I said, let's do some things like this, where you just tag on a question to every interview we do. And then we can start generating these other features um, and that just might be good. And it was, you know, I think. And, and this is I don't I don't I don't remember if this was my idea or not. So it probably wasn't. But this was this was a follow on from that kind of thing. And it was just it was it's always kind of, you know, you, you ask a question like that to someone you're interested in. It's almost if if you don't again going back to what I was saying about what color Tuesday. As long as you don't think you know the answer is yes or no, like that you're asking directly just for the the pure information. If you let someone talk, it's almost impossible for someone to be uninteresting. Yeah, absolutely is my view. You know, you know, and 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 if they are, you don't print it. But I I, I don't find any of these answers boring.
0: No, I quite enjoyed the Jesus and Mary chains uh, answer. Um, have you ever seen a ghost? And William Reed answers, Yes, I saw it, and Jim was there, once when he was on the toilet when we were little boys. I had to go upstairs with him because we were both scared to go upstairs alone. And he was sitting on the toilet, and I was waiting outside, and I saw a man dressed in black running through the wall. I screamed and ran downstairs, and Jim ran down after me with his trousers down round his ankles. And Jim (laughs) joins in. I remember it, but I didn't see anything. It's difficult to say what really happened. (laughs) But I think that, that tells you just so yeah. much about the Jesus and Mary chain, if not just their sartorial choices uh, throughout their career. You know, uh, seeing a ghost dressed in black disappearing through a wall.
2: Also, by the way, you know, a good example, Jesus and Mary chain. You know, on some level, people wouldn't think that was a natural smash-its group. What a great smash-its group they were. Yeah,
1: they, they were. They were on the cover. Yeah? At least, at least once, but uh, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sam, Sam Fox is great as well. I've just got to read a, a bit of Sam's. So she <laughs> yeah. gets asked because this story it doesn't make sense to me. Have you ever seen a ghost? I thought I saw a ghost when I was about 10 when I used to live by an abandoned railway. I used to go up there with my friend Susan Collins and another Susan, and we'd pretend that we were camping with a tin of baked beans and a can opener. And there was this old house we called the Voodoo House. And downstairs there was this conservatory with rabbit stuff and goat stuff. And then we found all stolen packets of cigarettes. And I remember going to tell my dad that it was sort of a hideout for voodoos. (laughs) He came back and had a look and said, don't worry about it. But we went back there and I swore I saw this man in a black cape jump off the roof. I ran back and told my mum. But he didn't really. He didn't. What? He didn't really jump off.
2: He wasn't there. Here's, here's, here's why I'm waiting for you to announce that you've tracked down the other Susan. <laughs> Funny you should say that. <laughs> if only. Need, need a bit more info than that.
1: The other Susan. She, she finishes off this quote by saying, I'm really interested in things like chariots of the gods. You know, the crown of thorns in the Bible. Maybe it's like a Martian's hat. <laughs> What a little window into the world of
2: Samantha Fox, that is. Fantastic. (laughs) But, you know, if you don't ask, you don't know.
0: Okay, so leaving all those spooks behind, we move to double-page spread. The last ever Mark King interview. Sniffle. No more tales of how he used to impersonate Michael Jackson. No more talk about ridiculous old dance crazes that nobody ever heard of. William Shaw waves. Bye-bye. Mark King of Level 42 and a photo of Mark caressing his bass guitar there. Um, (laughs) It begins... I can sit down and blabber for ages announces Mark King in a chatty fashion, but I've had enough of doing it. The fact is that over the last year, me and the other boys have been doing countless interviews and I've just decided that this is it. This is the very last interview I'll do. The reason for this dramatic decision is that over the last 12 months or so, Level 42 have become rather famous pop stars. They've been around and doing very well, thank you, for seven years and more." but it was only at the beginning of 1986 that Level 42 decided that they were going to stop just being famous for Mark King's fabulous, super-fast, thumb-plucking basemanship and become a proper pop group, writing proper pop songs, dressing in proper trendy pop clothes and making proper swanky pop videos. So they did all that, released lessons in love and presto. They were international megastars. Um... Yeah, so he just goes on, you know, talk, Mark King just talking about, you know, reminiscing, being a kid, playing at uh, Bucklins and, and uh, Pontins holiday camps when, when he was little, uh, drumming on the drums or singing squeakily to Rockin' Robin by the Jackson 5. Michael Jackson was 10 when he sung it, and I was 10 at the time, so I had to sing it because my voice hadn't broken yet. Sings in a piping high voice, rocking in the treetops all day long it used to drive me up the bleeding twist
1: i like the bit where he's, he's talking about uh, working the holiday camps when he's talking about uh, marvo the mighty magician <laughs> it's great It's would uh... say he was in the band, and then there'd be some entertainment. It said everyone, everyone would sit down and do the bingo, and then it was, here's Marvo, the mighty magician, and out would come some wrinkled old git in a turban and a loincloth. He really came from Leatherhead, but spoke in this affected voice. Everybody, put your glasses in my bag. <laughs> and then he smashes a up with a hammer and walks on broken glass and cuts his feet to pieces, and then he gets dragged out by his fat old tart of a wife. <laughs> Probably well, we couldn't say that these days, but uh, yeah, it, kind of, it may uh, maybe,
2: maybe good to stop doing interviews. Mark. Yeah, <laughs> maybe that's why it was the last one. Yeah, I don't think any of us have fact checked this, but I suspect it wasn't his last interview. Uh,
1: possibly not. Possibly no. not. <laughs> he also talks about his uh, his bandmates, and I think he's he's quite uh, maybe brutally honest uh, on occasion, particularly when he's talking about Boone Gould. I'm not sure how Boone would have felt about this. Mark says about Boone. He seems to go th- through lots of ups and downs. Unfortunately, he seems to have it quite hard when it comes to maintaining stable relationships with women. Women flock to Boone. He seems to be the most attractive guy in the band, yet I feel he needs a stable relationship because he doesn't look after himself. Apart from that, he's a really quiet guy. And you wonder how Boone would have felt reading that in Smash it's, it's a bit... Yeah. It's a bit personal,
2: isn't it? I you know? <laughs> don't imagine have been that happy about that. I, you know, I am... Um... Level 42 were not my... Uh... Bag... Not my bag. Yes, as, as people would say. Um, but, um, William does a great job here of like the challenge of how you make someone who's having these huge hits, you know, you make them into something that's true to them, but is, but is a good smash hits piece. And it's a kind of gift that we're, you know, because we, you know, we, we don't really think when he tells us it's his last ever interview. I think we're probably not thinking we can put put money at william hill on that being the case um but 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 nonetheless it's it gives us a nice way of framing the whole thing i
0: like that he calls curiosity killed the cat a more clued up version of kajagoogoo <laughs> I, d- I don't know who's being as insulted there yeah quite. um yeah there's just one other bit in this uh interview with mark king as well where he's talking about that he's recently moved house and that he's um he's built a studio in the loft so he can spend more time with his wife and, and his two young children. There's a little description here. It's, it's a place bristling with all sorts of recording technology and bass guitars with walls covered in the most revolting wallpaper. Hmm, says Mark. I didn't choose the wallpaper, actually, Paul's revolted face. It was there when I moved in. The bloke before me had a bar in the loft. Yes, exactly. An odd place for a bar. It makes me wonder what else the house was used for. And there's two b days in the house... What do you use two B days for? I mean, it's not for washing your car. It's very Cynthia Payne, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, again, is... uh, you know, Cynthia Payne. I think it would have been very much in, in the news back in sort of eighty six, eighty seven. But yeah, <laughs> but there again, it's been brought into that Smash its world. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah, these things aren't uh, aren't sugar coated. It's all part of popular culture. <laughs> I
1: remember um, one of our relatives. Uh, an auntie uh, in the family had had a b day in the bathroom, and as a kid, I I didn't know what it was. I always presumed it was a foot bath for many, many, many years, <laughs> far longer than I should have done. <laughs> okay, we we moved to the letters page and. Uh, not going to look at too many because uh, I think as we've mentioned on previous uh, episodes of the podcast, once you get to sort of later period, 80s, it's largely impenetrable to the, uh, <laughs> to the modern mind. However, I wanted to read this letter because it's probably the least likely pop feud that uh, you could ever imagine. It's the first letter in this issue. It says, Dearest Black Type, how can you print a pathetic letter from Stan's spectacle case, 11th of February What have Aha! ever done to Stan's spectacle case? The famous trio are not a piece of pathetic pop confectionery and Morton has been quoted as saying, I've got lots of little spots, so there, ye of little brains. As for the ridiculous idea that Aha! buy fjords and stuff themselves with goat's cheese all day, (laughs) it just shows the ignorant racism of some people. While I agree with SSC about the North being a very nice place, I come from Liverpool, I cannot see why Crywolf is something to giggle over. Stan's S.C. should listen to the lyrics of Happy Hour by the House Martins, which goes something like, you take all your clothes off and dance in the kitchen sink. The House Martin may well be a graceful bird, <laughs> but everyone knows what birds do in your eye when you happen to look up at their gracefulness. And, my dear, aha, is not a grunt, but a sign of inspiration. Yaboo sucks to you. Whilst I have nothing against the House Martins, my granny thinks they're nearly as good as Des O'Connor and Roger Whitaker. I feel that like I just had to write and correct stands, spectacle cases, silly mistakes. And that comes from Morton Harkett's real girlfriend in Liverpool. So who knew there was beef between Aha and the House Martin fans? <laughs> so, yeah, d- delivered with some real passion there. Yeah, yeah it's really heartfelt, isn't it? So, I'd, yeah, I should go back and read the previous letter, but uh, yeah, I didn't research it that much. But uh, <laughs> there we go.
0: I, would, I hope they've settled things now, yeah. all these years later. You'd hope so, wouldn't you? Uh, yeah, you, you really would. Um, so, skipping on, uh, just a couple of pages, and tucked away at the end of the mag, the bit that I always look forward to the most, and the bit that um, I would have looked for first uh, when I got the mag, and it's the review section, the singles, the albums, the films, the concerts. And uh, on singles reviews duty in this issue is Barry McElhenney, Um, He chooses Prince's uh, Sign of the Times as his single of the fortnight. Quite right, too, I think. Astonishing, he says. His royal pervness suddenly decides to give up singing about the joys of senseless bonking and instead turns his attention to the various social evils of life on planet Earth in 1987. Everything from AIDS to Star Wars comes under the microscope, and it's all accompanied by a typically infectious melody. If anybody else tried to turn such a cautionary tale into a brilliant single, they would undoubtedly end up sounding like Billy Bragg. Prince does it with an effortless grace and ends up sounding like the voice of um, God. Life just ain't fair. (laughs) Good review. Very good review. Um, Let's see what else has been reviewed in this fortnight's batch of singles. Uh, The Style Council with Waiting, Cameo, back and forth. He says, The third brilliant single from the brilliant Word Up LP, Larry Blackman, the thinking man's codpiece, croons merrily along while the other 300 members of Cameo Champ merrily away behind him. Larry refuses to be put off, however, and fights his way through yet another huge hit. Uh, Cindy Lauper's um, cover of Marvin Gaye's What's Going On? Curious to Kill the Cat, Ordinary Day. Vesta Williams, Don't Blow a Good Thing. The Pretenders, My Baby. Huey Lewis and the News, Simple as That. The Big Supreme, Please Yourself. Thompson Twins, Get That Love. Uh, Janet Jackson, Let's Wait a While. Salvation Sunday, Heart in Motion brother beyond how many times fancy that writes barry at the beginning of uh of that review just talking about them a second ago and here they are still looking like brilliant pop stars and sounding not quite ready for the role perhaps somebody should suggest one of them tries wearing his cap back to front mm. Uh rosie valer interlude johnny hates jazz shattered dreams johnny hates jazz what all of it Sadly, J.H.J. don't quite live up to their really crazy radical name with Shattered Dreams, which is a polite little ditty of interest only to incurable insomniacs. I think the only single that I bought uh, out of this batch was uh, Peter Gabriel's Big Time. Um, So I think this is like the third single or something like that from the So album. Barry says, more fun and games from the nicest man of all, the BPI Awards. He still seems a bit like Phil Collins, or is it the other way around? And though this is not quite as immediately striking as Sledgehammer, it's just as funky and proves yet again that there is life after Jonathan King. You wouldn't be able to print that now, but that's referring to obviously Jonathan King being the, the man who discovered Genesis and, and gave them uh, their, well, I wouldn't say big break, but gave them their break <laughs> back in about, I think, about 1969. And looking at the videos as well uh, that are on the playlist, check them out, Pop Kids. Um, I was watching the video for Big Time, and it just suddenly struck me. It's like, hang on a minute, Peter Gabriel is the British David Byrne. Uh, I was fully expecting him to turn up in his big suit and everything. But yeah, that that, that video is very kind of uh, once-in-a-lifetime road to nowhere. And uh, some physical similarities between um, Dave and Pete as well. Yeah, very much so.
1: Uh, it's fair to say, apart from Sign of the Times, there's not a great deal of quality in in the singles on on this one. Um, I enjoyed it. Barry's review of drum theatre, Moving Target on CBS. He says, whoops, drum theatre time again? <laughs> really? <laughs> what is there left to say about the theatre except that they will forever be number 44 in our hearts? Is there a doctor in the house? <laughs> <laughs> I did like, there was, there was a song I'd never heard before in a band I'd never heard before, Two People, This Is The Shirt, the last single that gets reviewed, which...
2: Oh, that's a good song. Yeah, Yeah, that was great.
1: Yeah. Barry says it would have been single The Fortnight
2: if it hadn't been for Prince. If I remember rightly, it goes, this is the shirt that I wore when it was good, good, good. That's right. There's a lyric. (laughs) (laughs) I can't believe I remember that. (laughs) By the way, there's there's one killer song there. Well, Let's Wait a While by Janet Jackson is one of her greatest songs. Oh, my God, that's an incredible song.
0: So when uh, when it came to your time to do singles reviews, Chris, mm. I mean, was that something that you relished or was it something that you, that you approached with a, a sense of I, trepidation, dread?
2: I think I just did it, but occasionally, I, I, occasionally people post them, and I and I and I and I look at some singles reviews that I did, and I'm just sort of shocked, really, uh, that <laughs> the nerve. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, and in some ways, it's totally right. Like to do it, especially it's something like Smash, you just have to be able to go in there and swing, like you're talking in the office. But when you think of it in terms of people's careers, and 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 you're some snotty 22 year old passing incredibly <laughs> arrogant judgment on people's careers in a way that actually may affect it to some degree. I'm, I'm sort of, I'm sort of wince and, you know, and occasionally you'll see something quoted on some Wikipedia page where you sliced through something, <laughs> you know, in some awful way. Uh, and then you. but at the time I just thought it was like, I mean, I still think this is funny, but I remember I, I reviewed, um, just a studio by Phil Collins. And wasn't nice about it. And <laughs> Phil Collins got, Phil Collins got the record company to send the radio reports, the radio reaction reports of how well this record has been greeted <laughs> by the radio to me, <laughs> which <laughs> was, on one hand, I think, wow, that's, uh, that's just a bit oversensitive. And, and <laughs> really, it's just a review. Um, <laughs> You know, on, on on the other hand, I sort of think that's kind of great that he that he cared that much. And also that, you know, it's also like saying this is serious. I'm taking this seriously. So remember that. And I sort of maybe did. You know, I still thought what I thought with the review, I would have written it differently, but I still thought, OK, it's worth remembering that people are taking notice of this.
0: Um, on the next page it's the album reviews some fairly high scoring albums in this one um, Julian Cope's St Julian scoring the highest Tom Hibbert gives it 9.5 out of 10 compilations from Benny King and Percy Sledge uh, Simply Red's Men and Women again 9 out of 10 the lowest scoring Susie and the Banshees Through the Looking Glass 3 out of 10 uh, Barry, uh, Barry McElhenney again this is really quite a spectacular achievement what Susie and the Banshees managed to do here is take 10 very good and very varied songs originally written and performed by other people and then turn them into their standard gloomy black holes (laughs) so yeah he's not (laughs) impressed with that but Barry also reviews the Joshua Tree by uh, that little known combo U2 hurrah the most splendiferous rock band in the world return and damn good it is to have them back 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 with a spinkling new LP that takes the best bits of war and unforgettable fire, mixes them together and adds on a few new ideas of its own to make it their finest effort yet. Back with a song called Red Hill Town, which features greatest living Irishman Bono. It is most expressive, his voice gently rising above the massed choirs in the background. Back with another little classic called One Tree Hill, another typical U2 pian pain? Pain, however you say that, to all things, I've never had to say that out loud, <laughs> to all things natural and spiritual, whatever. There's the usual quota of references to hills and rivers and mountains and things like that, and it only gets a mite embarrassing when at one stage Bono goes completely bonkers and booms out, oh great ocean, before being snipped by a very sensible producer. As always, you two remain in danger at times of taking themselves just a touch too seriously, but even then, they still sound quite brilliant. Nine out of ten.
2: We will have. We will have. We will have given him such a hard time about that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
0: Um. Yeah. And then, um. Yeah. A few film reviews. uh, The Color of Money, of course, starring uh, Tom Cruise and Paul Newman.
2: There's. uh, Oh, Chris, you're reviewing Whoops Apocalypse with um, Rick Mayall, which I can barely remember. It wasn't very good, I don't think. Yeah, I
0: don't remember it either. And I was a massive fan of, of all that sort of stuff at the time. I don't recall it at all. Yeah, no, no. Yep. And then uh, underneath that, a review of Stand By Me, and I was reading through it, and then th- the name of the review at the re- at the end, John Ronson. I thought and the spelling is the same, so I was thought, is it the same? And can you confirm or,
2: or deny whether that's the same, uh, John Ronson? <laughs> no, it's definitely the same. Uh, no, I... I um... It's it's one of the potentially awful moments. I I I I know John a little now, and I ran into him years later, and he said, "I came to see you when you were you were a reviews editor," and immediately my whole body clenched (laughs) up because normally normally how that goes is, you know, you know we were pretty. I mean, on one hand, by the way, anybody could call up. And would have a chance. I mean, people didn't realise, you know, because we want to always wanted people. You always need new people and you'd give anyone a chance. But having said that, the bar was very high and and we probably I probably was not as as um gentle as you know, I think I, 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 don't, I don't even want to know what my people skills are like now, but they definitely have improved <laughs> uh, from, you know, because I, you know, I'd like to say in my defense, it was all about, I was so imbued by the mission of what we were doing that I wasn't, I thought everyone else was on board with that. And that was the only thing anyone cared about, which is both sort of sweet and really stupid. Because um, you know, there are other things that are actually of sometimes quite great importance. Um, but you know it was on that f- from that point of view I think I could be very kind of dismissive and 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 probably not very gentle um but um apparently it's but John said i was good and and uh, to, and I had nurtured him through you know in some fairly i so he he must have he must have shown that he was you know, potentially of, of, you know, he must have said or done something. I, don't, I really don't specifically remember it, which is embarrassing. Um, but um, anyway, so he started doing the old review and stuff. And, uh, you know, he's done quite well since then, I believe. Yeah, he's done all right for himself a lot, hasn't he? Yeah, It's all word time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a couple of um, gig reviews and uh, let's see what we've got here we're both at the Hammersmith Odeon but very different artists although they share a record label uh, Cindy Lauper first of all Deryn Schlesinger uh, and I'm sorry Darren, for uh, ruining your surname there uh, she goes to see Cindy Lauper just one, one little bit that I liked in this um, so it is all quite true then Cindy Lauper in the flesh is a miniature pop person does look a bit of a state and could probably scream loud enough to dispatch a dog to the great blue yonder from a distance of 100 <laughs> yards. <laughs> well, that was a brilliant line. Um, and then on the uh, the opposite page, um, like I say, Europe, also at the uh, Hammersmith Odeon, who's reviewing them? Lola Borg is, has uh, gone to see Europe. And uh, I'll just read the, the opening bit here. Whoever heard of a heavy metal band with suntans? the drummer that wears white Adidas shorts whose repertoire includes Mozart's Einer Kleiner Natch music and Rimsky- Rimsky-Korsakov's Flight of the Bumblebee who gingerly sip at mineral water in between songs who line up at the front of the stage to warble an a cappella number well Europe do all of these things and more but then Europe are not really a proper heavy metal group in the time-honored tradition of ver lads rocking out in front <laughs> rocking out in front of lots of other lads in the audience Tonight's crowd includes quite a few girlies, some of them even offering red roses to singer Joey Tempest.
1: Yeah, this made me laugh actually because uh, obviously they're they're well known for Final Countdown and it's fair to say not really anything else. So She says, uh, after the initial blast of the Final Countdown, because I think they play it quite early on in the set, anyone would have difficulty sustaining this kind of frenzy and there are slight lulls here and there. Usually when the bronze Joey disappears to change his jacket which, strangely enough, he does several times, though to one exactly the same design but a different colour. (laughs) This is the cue for the rest of the group to give up ploughing through the album tracks, none of which match up to the final countdown, and launch into a rather tedious instrumental. No wonder Joey shouts out, Are you still there? to the audience when he returns. (laughs) Uh, And it says that they, they come back on at the end for another version of the final countdown and two more encores, and then by this point... You know, the crowd's in uh, bonkers and uh, a good night has been had. But, uh, yeah, I think the fact that they have to do Final Countdown twice kind of tells you all you need to know about <laughs> Europe.
0: <laughs> and that brings us to the end of this issue of Smashes. Uh, Chris, I mean, just some final thoughts about your going back... Uh, how much of it is still kind of you know, sort of cemented in your in your mind and and also what what that time at smash It means to you
2: you know it it was the, it was the, you know looking back, I think I even knew at the time it was an incredible privilege to be part of it. It was like you know you i think what what i didn't realize is i mean a couple of times in my life i've been in incredible creative environments around lots of other people who are just sort of firing. And you're just learning from them and you're creating stuff that's better than any of you could do individually. And I think I thought that's what jobs were like. And I had a similar situation like that in America, Details Magazine in the early nineties, which is a very different magazine to what it became later on. And that was the same kind of environment where everyone just kind of pushed everyone else on and lifted everyone else off. off. That was very exciting. But this was this and to fight to have this at the beginning of my, of my you know, life, you know, out in the world, it was just, a, you know, it, it was just an incredibly lucky place to have found myself. And it was just, incre- you know, looking back, it was an incredible privilege, but I learned so much from it. And it was like, you know, of course, you know, you know, if, if, you, if you got any of us going, we can remember endless arguments and endless this is and that's and whatever. But basically, I think we all knew we were having a kind of pretty amazing experience at the same time. And you know, I knew that at the time and I and I knew it know it even more looking back. Brilliant.
1: Thank you very much. It's been uh, enlightening and fascinating. It's lovely to hear kind of from the other side of uh of the lens, as it were, you know, the stories behind uh, the interviews and what was happening in the office. So thank you very much for sharing all your uh,
2: experiences and memories with us, Chris. It's been brilliant. No, thanks. Thanks. It's, it's been, it's been weird, but, uh, but (laughs) weird, weird, but, but, but interesting to do. And I hope, um, anyway, I hope it, uh, uh, Makes some sense when people <laughs> listen to it.
0: I'm just thinking that people are going to demanding to hear the whole Greedy Smith tape. Yeah, you might need to release
2: it as a bootleg. Yeah, like the Trog tapes. Release yeah. the tapes. <laughs> well you, you know, you know, GoFundMe pages exist.
1: <laughs> so thanks again, Chris, and our mutual friends, Tony Fletcher and Mark Ellen, for helping to make it all happen today. And of course, you lovely lot out there for listening. Don't forget to check out our website, giddypoppod.home.blog. Well, you'll find the links to the issue of Smash Hits that we've been looking at, along with those Spotify and YouTube playlists, so you can enjoy your ride on the carousel to its fullest and, indeed, its giddiest. You can also find our previous episodes, along with
0: playlists and scans, while you're there. And if you want to support us by buying us a coffee, then you know what to do. Go to coffee.com, that's dot com slash Giddy Pop Pod. doesn't matter whether you do the slash forwards or backwards. It gets you to the same place. If you feel moved enough to leave us a review, then please do. And come and say hello to us, and we'll say hello back. Giddy Pop Pod on the socials. Now there's so many social media platforms <laughs> going around now, we'll just say the <laughs> socials. We're bound to be on one of them. Just search for Giddy Pop Pod.
1: Yeah, we've still got to get a CFAX page sorted, haven't we? But otherwise, C, we're across well,
0: everything. Yeah, CFAX, teletext, uh, and then, we, um, well, we'll, we'll do, we, we might do a dial pod uh, so you can phone a phone number and listen oh, to the podcast. Great idea, mate. Yeah, <laughs> dial-a-pod. <laughs> hey, Gav's
1: juicy gossip on Cy. Si. What's, what's it really like doing a podcast with Cy
0: si Galloway? <laughs> Tell all. Gav tells all. And if you've been on a carousel, I must say, if, you, if you've been on a carousel like I have. Take a selfie. Send us a photo of you on a carousel. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. We want to
1: see them. We want to compare the different carousels around the country. So thanks once again for listening and we'll see you next time on The Giddy Carousel of Pop.
0: Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. ta Now you be bloody 40.